Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back <laughs> to another episode of Of The Devil's Party. And yes, Rowan and I are doing the Pathic episode, but it's not ready yet, so we haven't had a chance to sit down and do it, but it is coming, folks. And, and Peter is back with us, um, but his voice is perhaps not what it normally is, um, but he is well. Yes. I've just been a bit dissected like a frog recently, but... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm now uh, unfrogged. Fighting fit. Fighting fit, yeah. Frog fit. Frog fit. Yes, indeed. Although that, it just strikes me like time references are a bit sort of like Doctor Who, aren't they? Because, I mean, what do they really refer to? It's really the order in which somebody listens to the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, true. So, Canto 10. Now, Canto 10 is normally, of course, a very important canto in in the books as, as, they, as we move through. But this Canto 10 seems in some ways a little disappointing, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> it's... It might be a short episode. <laughs> it might be a short episode. Well, it's just that it, it addresses concerns that aren't really our concerns. Yeah. Um, if you like history, it's interesting. Yeah. And if you like perspectives of history, it's interesting. That's right, that's right. But, of course, it's, it's, it's not really history. It's a special kind of history. Mm-hmm. And, and so what we need to do is understand why it's here and why it's given such importance. Um, and that might make it acceptable, mm-hmm. perhaps. So history, history, big topic for the Elizabethans. And really because you've got this kind of project of nation-building going on. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. You know, we, we look at the great flourishing of literature in this period, in the 1590s, and we think, wow, how did that happen? Because you go back to her father's reign, and there's very little you'd want to call literature. There's maybe two poets worth reading, Wyatt and, and, um, and what's his name? The dog roll chap, what's his name? We're going to make allowances for Peter <laughs> yes, today as exactly. well. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You may have to Google. <laughs> the one's memory. Well, uh, the, Google the tunning of Eleanor Rumming. How about I'll do it? <laughs> the tunning of Eleanor Rumming? Oh, yes, it's great fun. It sounds like a one well, it's it's knockabout bawdy humour. Okay. Is not entirely absent from it. Um, John Skelton. John Skelton, thank you. Okay. That's so John right. Skelton and Wyatt. And White, Thomas Wyatt Thomas are really Wyatt. the the only poets worth paying attention to in this period. And before that was Chaucer, right? Well, a big gap in the 15th century, at least in English yeah. poetry, with quite appalling stuff. Lydgood, who was described famously by an 18th century critic as a prosaic, voluminous, and drivelling monk. <laughs> That's what you want on your resume. <laughs> Dribbling monk for sale. <laughs> Free to a good home. Well, he, he's wonderful because he's, he's like your sort of worst medieval poet. As soon as he sees a topus in sight, like, you know, fortune is fickle, mm. life is short, he goes with it. He's off, he's away. So it's only that idea all the way through. Well, and then, of course, he's got 50 examples in his knapsack of fortune is fickle. Lo Hercules, who uh. did one, you know, that kind of thing. Mm. And you can, you know, you can see tiniest echoes of that in someone like Spencer, but Spencer is much more controlled. He's not dependent on 
He's more creative. <laughs> yeah, and he's, he's not working to, right, I've got to do 100,000 words on the fall of Troy. Where am I going to get them from? I know, I'll bang on about fortune. Uh, mm, mm, mm. You know. Right. But he was quite well known and famous in his time and much employed. So it was a real dearth. So the, the point I'm getting at is that, in some sense, you know, English literature arises when it's kind of necessary because it's part of this nation building project. A nation has a literature. Um, just as the Romans had Virgil and the Greeks had Homer and so on. Well, we don't have it anymore. Uh, not the not way to it used to be. It's no. more the generations or groups yes. or rather than nations. Uh, well, I know. We're not united. Yeah. I What's know. the Liberal Party <laughs> nation building going to be? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's rather sad, isn't it? Um, that's an, I suppose that's a result of globalisation and postmodernism. We don't and have fragmentation and yeah interesting mm, mm, that's exactly right but one of the things that a nation needs of course is a history because a history is an origin story you don't know who you are if you don't know where you came from everyone needs that first marvel film first marvel film first is marvel. always the origin story you get the is spider-man it? and then the, oh, the two after spider-man's adventure i did see spider-man really are you yeah. okay <laughs> I can't. I can't say it was the most but, recent one. No, no, no. Oh, it's about it, about him being bitten by a. Well, they all are. That's <laughs> <laughs> the same story over and over. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. And that's kind of the point. So. But yeah. it was. It was kind of crap, really. Yes. Mm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> origin story. Origin story. Crucial. Every myth, you know, has origin stories and so on. And this, this is, this is why. We get this weird genre in the, in the 1590s that really doesn't appear elsewhere in theatre. You know, it's a big part of theatre is history plays. Mm. Of course, Shakespeare is, is big in the history plays, but other people write them too. Because what they're doing, particularly Shakespeare's history plays, they're exploring who are the English, where do they come from, where do they fit in, what is their destiny. You know, because we perhaps sometimes think of history as kind of one damn thing after another. But they saw it as... They saw it as a theatre of God's providence, <laughs> as a kind of plan. Um, and this is actually quite interesting. You know, God has a plan for the English nation, and always, of course, it's going to be, you know, the chosen nation. Yeah. Is Nobody... that why we're all merely players on a stage? Is that why that quote is what it is? Um... Linking in with that idea? I, and well, not directly, I don't okay. think, because that's actually from a comedy. Mm, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, fair. But well, except of course, Henry the Fifth begins very much with with a story about um, enactment and performance. Mm. Oh, for a muse of fire that should ascend the brightest heaven of invention, a kingdom for a stage, princes to act, and monarchs to behold the selling, swelling scene. So, you know, that's very much about... I realise what our version is. It's films like Gallipoli and, you know, those yeah. World War One, like oh. Anzacs, Bros. Absolutely. That would be what our, That's our origin story. Exactly. Forget Captain Cook. <laughs> yes. Don't talk about the war. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's right. That's exactly we, right. And it's the same thing. We expunge the original, actual origin story. Yeah. And make our own. Yeah, OK. Yeah, yeah. that's right. That's right. When you, when you look at old-fashioned children's books of history of Australia... There's never, there's never a black person to be seen, Mm-mm. except very occasionally as a kind of wild creature dancing on a distant hillside, you know, mm-hmm. and that's about it. Yep. <laughs> it is terra nullius, the land belonging to nobody. There's an extra complication here, which is an interesting one, which is England in the 1590s is just embarking 
and it's kind of second imperial project. Second. Well, the first, first would be America. bashing the Celts. Oh, yeah, fair. You know, yep, yeah, all right. <laughs> yep, that was a project. <laughs> that was a project. That begins in 1170 when um, Edward invades Ireland and it never went well. No. No. <laughs> it was always a dog's breakfast. Yes. <laughs> even even now with, you know, the EU and the special arrangements for Northern Ireland, Ireland continues to be... Well, it's sort of Subject. payback. Yes. If England had left Ireland alone, yeah. none of this would have happened. Mm. But, yeah, Ireland and then, of course, the endless wars against poor old Scotland. Yes. And the successful crushing of Wales, because Wales is tiny compared to England. Mm. Scotland's a tenth the size of England in terms of population. So, yeah, that was the first imperial project, the British Isles. And that's very important here, of course. That very word British as opposed to English. Yes. I've crucial. been listening to your podcasts, your Middle English, uh, your English one. I'm up to the Vikings, so there's been a lot of discussion about oh, how it yes. came to be what it is. Like mm. Pender and yeah. someone read, not Ethelred. Anyway, the king that brought them all together, essentially. Yes. Yeah. yes. Ethelred the Unready. Yeah, that was him? Well, uh, well, well that's yeah. Another, I know that one. Yes, exactly. <laughs> unready meaning poorly advised. Right. Not he wasn't. still in bed. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. kings would hold counsel from bed, so well, they that would. Have been they a would. Problem. The levee, oh, absolutely would. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. So you've got this need then for an origin story, um, and it's complicated, as I say, by the fact that England is embarking on this second imperial project in. Virginia, which is <laughs> which went just as well. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit, a bit of a crap fest. Yeah, but eventually, yes, <laughs> eventually it, it led. And you know, if you look at the play like *The Tempest*, which is written in 1611 or 12, yeah, that is very much a critique of that whole idea of the the English as blessed by God, given a kind of imperial charge to go forth and subdue the land and multiply and to be God's new chosen people, because clearly he didn't favour the, the Jews anymore. You know, they were, <laughs> they were cast yeah. offs. And then all that led, led eventually to, you know, the, 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 the empire in 100 years ago, which covered a quarter of the globe and a, a quarter of the world's Yeah, the, not, the sun people. never set on the British sun Empire. sun never set, that's right. But it all begins in the 1590s. Yeah. It kicks off. Um, as we've talked about, you know, the way religion is changing, money is changing, yes. capitalism is evolving. Exactly. Nation states. You yeah. Know, it's such a big turning point. Oh, it's utterly huge. 17th Nobody century. knows about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> the 17th century. I mean, England, the beginning of the end of the 18th century, 17th century, a totally different place. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, yeah, you've... Yes. <laughs> I'm now thinking of Milton's. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the beginning of the century, it's still a kind of partly medieval kingdom, mm. <laughs> um, governed by a king who believes in divine right. At the end of the century, it's a constitutional monarchy, governed essentially by capitalists and by the Bank of England. <laughs> with a, and that never stops. <laughs> no, no. With a huge, a huge commitment to science. Yeah. So yes, it was and then utterly. We move into yeah the 18th century and. That's right. Yeah. But utterly, utterly transformative. The French called the 17th century le grand siècle, the but... great century. Hmm. And I think that's true. Yeah. And of course, you know, in the middle of it, we have this civil war. This <laughs> I'm aware. Familia. Yes. Which is still problematic for the English. It, it's very interesting that that. I wrote, my, my school career was interrupted by moves because my father was in the Royal Air Force. 
kept kept switching around from place to place. And very often you'd go to a new school and you'd go back to the Stone Age or something or the Vikings or whatever it was. But I never managed to actually do the English Civil War, the, the formative event in the whole history. <laughs> and I think it was kind of avoided because... Really? Still, yeah. It's so contentious. Well, I mean, certainly in the 19th century, Milton was still seen as, um, you know, what Dr. Johnson called him, a surly and acrimonious Republican. In other words, a political figure. Yeah, okay. Well, yeah. A lot of writing, even up to the 60s, so on Milton as well. Mm. He is always introduced and talked about in that way. Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't realised that was why. I thought it was more academic perspective of him. It's a, no, it's a very much a political perspective. Interesting. And therefore, the more you can taint him as a you know wife beater, which of course is nonsense. He's not. He's not. He's not. <laughs> so tired. <laughs> yeah, or he hated his daughters. Hated his daughters. Yes. He oh. certainly had a weird relationship with the first wife, but we don't know why. And no. Was, and whatever. Exactly. Like, she was from a royalist family. That's probably exactly. what it was. Which wouldn't help. Yeah. Also, Milton would have been a, just a pain in the ass. So he would have been a difficult man. <laughs> 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 yeah, and you can tell, you can tell just from Paradise Lost and nothing else that he had a rather sharp, sarcastic sense of humour. Mm-hmm. I would have liked it. Not <laughs> yeah. that I would have dated. <laughs> yeah. Getting back to fifteen ninety. Civil War. Sorry. No, 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 no. <laughs> well, no, but that's important mm. because you know, in a play like Coriolanus, which is written in sixteen oh nine or so, you can absolutely see all the germs of the Civil War. They're mm. present in the class conflicts he represents in terms of the, the the growth of the Roman Republic out of the Roman monarchy. So, yeah, they're, they're there. They didn't spring out of, you know, out of nowhere overnight in 16, uh, 1639. It was building. It was building. Yeah, there was ferment. Oh, it was. <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. And the thing is that Elizabeth sat on it, so to speak, very skillfully. Mm. Well... Je- She's a lady. She managed to organise herself. And she was intelligent. Yeah. And, you know, she knew how to deal with people. And then... She was a people person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> then we've got, they've got a couple of bricks, like James I and Charles I. And they didn't help. We, they didn't help. Yeah. And the whole the whole boiling came apart, you know. And this, this is... That's called potted history. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, after Spencer, but Spencer is sitting at the start of the boiling. At the, st- at the yeah. start of it, though, yes. Yeah. Okay. That's right. So these stories then of where England came from, how it was produced, how it was formed are very important. And that's what we get in this section. I mean, there are other sections later on, but we won't bother at them for the time being. I'm, I'm conscious. <laughs> I think you're okay. Um, Am I? Yeah. Are you keeping I'm, an eye on I'm you? keeping an eye. <laughs> okay. English or- that's right. Which, of course, is tied up with British origin stories because they were... You see, they didn't, have, they didn't have a lot of actual history. Now, a nation that's to be a great nation has to have a history. Yeah. And indeed, ought to have a foundation epic poem, mm. like the Aeneid. Which is what, you know, Virgil does for Rome, Dante does... Uh, to some extent. In a way. In a way, yeah. Um, yeah, in a way. Yeah, that's right, for the Empire and the Church. <laughs> and then Spencer realised there was um, a hole to fill. <laughs> a hole to fill, that's yeah. right. That's right. And, and it, it can't be filled with actual material, because there isn't any. Yes. You know, English history, you go back to Bede, the Venerable Bede. Yes. But then before the Venerable Bede, there's not a lot. And he's so prolific as well, I didn't realise. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. Oh, he's me. the one. He was churning <laughs> no one it else. out. <laughs> That's right. 
Yeah. That's right. And he came up with all the stories, Hengist and Horse and all that, which we, which we meet here. Not all the stories, because, of course, very handily, Geoffrey of Monmouth, mm-hmm. another monk, in 1154 produced the history of the kings of England, Historia Regum Anglorum. Which is what Spencer's using here as well, isn't it? Mainly. Yeah. He mainly. deviates a lot. Okay, okay. Um, but, yeah, mainly that's what he's using, which is essentially a made-up history mm. to fill all the gaps. You know, in a quite arbitrary way. A propaganda. <laughs> well, essentially, yeah. 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 And if you haven't got a history, well, just make one up. <laughs> um, and Arthur fits into this? Arthur fits into it, yes. He certainly does. He's, he's almost the centrepiece, in fact, of the, of, of the uh, Historia. That's right. But Arthur, Arthur is a very interesting figure because, of course, he is a Briton... Mm-hmm. Fighting the English, mm-hmm. so in a sense, he could be seen as a kind of divisive figure. You've got to find some way of, of blending those two different histories and, and origin stories. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was one of the great myths, you know, that, um, that it's essentially a British place, which then somehow becomes English at the same time. Okay. And then, of course, there's there's also the myth of the Saxon yoke, right? Uh, well, the idea that the French imposed this foreign system of government and rules and law upon a freedom-loving, huh. peaceful, you know, uh-huh. Saxon people who, who decided everything under the great oak tree, um, you know, with, with manhood suffrage and mm. all that kind so of stuff. So it was stuff. a utopian kind of golden yeah. age place and then the French came and And the ki- French it. came and kicked it all in the teeth. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Convenient. That's right. Sorry, the Norman yoke. I shouldn't have said the Saxon yoke. So there's a lot of myth sloshing around. And this history, <clears throat> this imaginary history, because it's totally imaginary. Now, the French at least have a few names from the Roman period, like the Cinctorix. The chap who fought the Romans and was eventually defeated by them. But there are no names. Well, there's one name in Tacitus of one Scottish leader who makes a famous speech against the Romans. Oh. Oh, that's brilliant. Um, from which we get the famous phrase, desertem faciunt et pacem appellant. Oh, yeah, I hear that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> they make a desert and they call it peace. Ooh. It's brilliant, isn't it? The US. <laughs> That's, right. That's exactly right. Cheers. Yes. We had to destroy the village in order to save it. Mm, mm. Vietnam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's a Roman writer, Tacitus, who comes up with that wonderful phrase. Wow. Rather than that, of course, it's just a blank. Oh, and there's Bodicea, of course. Boudica. Queen. Queen Bodicea. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. She's cool. <laughs> she is. And she'll, she'll pop up. She will. <laughs> Do we need to explain the Aeneid before we start or as we go? Oh, well, we, we, can, we can do it now, I suppose. And basically the Aeneid, of course, is the story of the founding of the Roman Empire. Because the Roman Empire isn't just power, it's authority. Where does that authority come from? Well, authority is transferred rather in, you know, in a kind of Roman legal sense, like an inheritance. Mm. So, 
it begins for some reason which has never been quite clear to me with the Trojans. <laughs> yeah, why were they important? I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, ask me that somewhere. the other day, and I was like, I don't know, actually. You've got to stop somewhere. I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So the Trojans have been around a long time. Right, and they were good at what they did. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so they obviously had some sort of, I don't know, would we call it a mandate of heaven or something? Because. Who, who does the mandating here? It's not really very clear. Uh, trade route. Because everybody worships different gods. Yeah. And, but no, no, no. <clears throat> it's genuinely authority and not just power. Okay. That's the point. Right. So the Roman, same way that the US has authority, not it, just power. Uh, ostensibly, ostensibly. Well, it, yeah, it claims. Yeah. But it claims authority. Yeah. From, of course, its act of defiance and rebellion against against King George III. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm more thinking now, um, like, who has authority? Well, it's a very good question. Yeah. Um, But that's where their authority comes from. Yeah, okay. So it's like authority that comes from conquest. Right. So William the Conqueror had authority by right of conquest. That was a recognised thing. 1066. 1066. And what that meant was he could remake all the rules. Good for him. Yes, exactly. Start from new. Didn't have to accommodate himself to any any pre-existing rules. When Henry VII took over the Battle of Bosworth, he was informed that he could claim right of conquest, but he didn't want to because he wanted to... Smooth transition. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He wanted an ideological... And this is very important for our, for our poem. He wanted this yeah, smooth ideological transition whereby he presents himself as the last of the Lancastrians... Yes. ...who then marries the last of the Yorkists, yes. Elizabeth... And produces a new synthesis, which is the Tudors. Yeah. So although he could have made that claim and had the right to, you know, reinvent it as a... And just be a conqueror. conqueror. It was smarter to transition because he was going to bring everyone who was there currently on board as opposed to alienating them by being like, no, guys, we're doing it this way. Yeah, because a conqueror always has a kind of alienated sub-populace, you know, <laughs> yeah. Does this still exist? Could I rock up on the seventh floor and claim it by conquest? You might have to fight someone. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Single combat with B. Oh yeah, thank you. All of this is relevant, people. I promise. Very, very relevant. Very relevant. <laughs> the rest will not make sense unless we explain it. Very relevant. It's called the Aeneas. About Aeneas. Aeneas is the son of King Priam of Troy. Yes. The last the king young, of Troy. Youngest son? Oh, who knows? No, okay. There were 50. It's prolific. Yeah. yeah. He was one of them. Or Hecuba. Right? <laughs> That's um. right. <laughs> he was one of them. Doesn't really matter because he's got it in his loins, so to speak. You know, it's <laughs> it's the whole the Roman idea of, of inheritance where you inherit not just the goods and chattels of your parent or your father, let's face it, it's very patriarchal. But also the rights, responsibilities, freedoms, what, and what so on. Powers. Okay. Yes. Powers. That's why the Pope... That we've talked about this, haven't we? The, the way that um, the Catholic Church gets around the problem of licentious popes who kind of turn the Vatican into a brothel in the 16th century. And How do they get around it? Well, they claim that popes, in fact, indeed like priests, are what are called unworthy heirs of St. Peter. Hilarious. Yes. So that they they may be unworthy of being the heir of St. Peter. But they're still the heirs. But they're still the heirs, so legally they inherit all the rights of Peter. So there's Peter. nothing we can do. Nothing we can do, yeah. So, you're, you, you know, the, 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 the bishop may be a fornicating so-and-so. Pedophile, yeah. Pedophile, yes. Yeah. 
but when he comes to do the laying on of hands, you know, <laughs> he, he, me, you he are, has the he has the mojo. He has the mojo. You're, yes, you're properly confirmed and, and um, yeah. yes. Right. Okay. Just hope he puts him in the right place. <laughs> so, so that's the way you get round it. So Aeneas is the worthy or unworthy of heir of Troy. Priam, yeah. and therefore the whole history of Trojan authority. Goes in his balls that way. All right, yeah. got it. So the Roman Empire is properly constituted, has the authority, and indeed that's how they saw it, you know. When, when, when the barbarians arrived in the 6th century, 5th century, 6th century, they didn't see themselves as replacing the Romans, but as kind of adopting Roman. So, you know... They just moved in. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, I've forgotten the, the name of the famous Langobard king of... Who, um, the chap who executed Boethius. But anyway, he saw himself as a... Sorry. <laughs> Do you want me to Google it? <laughs> well, no, no, no. okay. <laughs> um, but he saw himself as a, as a, a, a Roman senator, you know, in a sense. Oh. Because, look, the Roman Empire had been around forever. A while, yeah. Well, forever. Yeah. Hundreds, hundreds of years. It wasn't necessarily that it turned up. It was about giving it the authority that it was now yeah. the central power. That's right. Okay, all right. That's right. And, and so... When in the 16th century you had, well, in fact, earlier than that, but this is when it becomes crucial, France and England in particular as nation-states, because, of course, Germany and Italy were not nation-states, they were just... Mess. Mess, yeah, exactly. They were a mess. They were a mess. (laughs) (laughs) A hot mess. (laughs) But France and England wanted that authority. Yeah, and they were battling it out, yeah. So, uh, well, but, so what they did is they claimed it from Priam in the same way. Hilarious. So... Priam apparently had another son called Brutus, and we'll meet him in the poem, who sails to England and founds Britain. Brutus, Britain. We just didn't hear about him for a, for a while. <laughs> yes? It's unfortunate that Brutus is Latin for stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Britain was founded by, by Mr. Stupid. And after, Actually, you know what? That checks out. Well, it well after Brexit, it absolutely <laughs> checks out. <laughs> Brexit and Boris, Mr. yes. Mr. Stupid is in... Tra- oh, God, and they're going from stupid to stupider. Uh-huh. From dumb to dumber, aren't mm-hmm. they, really? Because, unfortunately, it will now be... That, I can't even say her name. Ms. Truss. So, I will also... A chap called Francus, you'll be surprised to learn, founds France. Mm-hmm. Francus is Brutus's. Now, look... Ah, <laughs> Brutus's brother. Well, look, it, different, there are different sources, and sometimes it's a bit complicated, but they are related. Okay. So sometimes Brutus is a grandson of Priam oh. or a great grandson or something. So it's not mm-hmm. it's not always absolutely clear cut, but they are they are family members, and they take their authority from Priam. the house of Priam. Okay. I mean, our history is just as mad in a different way, and more horrifying. That's right. Well, I don't know. In the famous words of the chap in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, <laughs> strange blonde women hold, handing out swords in ponds <laughs> is a system of foundation for government. I've been rewatching Blackadder too, and all the new, like, I understand it more now. I haven't watched it since I was a teenager. <laughs> <clears throat> <laughs> Richard's head in the. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's who that is. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> uh, yes. <clears throat> okay, so this is his version of the Aeneid claiming a similar uh, form of authority as the Aeneid did. Which is going to lead directly through Arthur to Elizabeth. Yes. <laughs> and thereby 
enshrining Elizabeth, Elizabeth as the seat of power and yes, authority. Yes. And a badass bitch. Exactly. Girl boss. Yeah. Okay. Her. Yes. yes. <laughs> and this is all actually rather crucially important at this period. Yes. But just briefly, I'll explain. Um, Elizabeth, her authority is very much under. <laughs> under siege. First of all, her grandfather, who seizes the throne in 1485, has really pretty close to zero title to the throne. He's hardly even counting as a Lancastrian. If he were a Lancastrian, he would be sort of, you know, 47th in line or something. So he's, he's pushed himself to the head of the queue. Mm-hmm. <laughs> seized the throne, but wants to represent it as legitimate. So his legitimacy is in doubt. And therefore, the whole Tudor line, because he's a Welshman, Tudor, is a Welsh name. So it was a Welsh dynasty. Oh. Oh, yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so okay. French Plantagenet succeeded by the Welsh Tudors, succeeded by the Scottish mm. Stuarts, succeeded by the Dutch, succeeded by the Germans. <laughs> Hasn't been an English Sex- ruler. Ultimately, yes. Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, that's right. Slash Windsor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Exactly. But, but before then, just Hanover. Yeah. George I, next Wow, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, because they were getting along for a little while. Yeah. Oh, yes. <sighs> right. So. So there was that. Well, well, anyway, but this is crucial, because what it means is that she starts out with a kind of poisoned chalice. Mm-hmm. And so the Tudors do two crucial things. One of these is to represent Richard, who was the last legitimate king of England, the last Plantagenet to represent him as a moral monster. This is Richard III. Which, hence, yeah. yes, Richard the way, you know, Shakespeare to some extent takes the piss out of all this. A by, <laughs> by, by, by making him into a cartoon villain whom mm. you can't take quite seriously. In a lot of ways, he's kind of the first cartoon villain, isn't yes, he? Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, hunchback. Yes. Yeah, that's right. the idea that if you had deformities, it was representative of your soul, so therefore he was a monster. Exactly. Yeah, okay. And in fact, he had a barely noticeable scoliosis of the spine, as his recently just discovered... Just a bit sideways, yeah, yeah it was fine. A, didn't stop him riding a horse and fighting in battles. And, yeah, and yeah. he was okay as a king? He was not only okay... Yeah, I, th- I thought he it was, was pretty good. He was considerably better than, than, than Henry, who succeeded him. He spent most of his time just... You know, grinding the faces of the poor, just trying to get money together. <laughs> Richard, Richard shows one of the earliest interests in the whole of English history in making the law a bit more just for people who didn't have lots of money. I mean, you know, what a great guy! <laughs> Look, he was an admirable. Yeah, monk. yeah. Third was okay. That was my yeah, understanding. May been, I mean, you know, there may have been no blot in the escutcheon, but it's not even certainly kill the princes. So we, it's it's yeah. at least possible that. And, and perhaps more likely in some ways. We won't go down this rabbit hole. No, because nobody knows, you. but... Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, yeah, the, well, the princes were his nephews. Yeah, that were killed in the tower. And, of course, they were technically next in line. Yes. And, in fact, Edward the Edward the Fifth. We hardly talk about Edward the Fifth because he was probably killed in the tower, but he was a boy at the time. Yeah. He was never crowned. They were to be crowned in July 1453... Uh, 1483, I mean, you beg your pardon. But, How dare you? Really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that crowning never happened. They were seen playing in the palace grounds, then they weren't seen playing in the palace grounds. And they just, yeah, just disappeared. Kind of they never found a body, did they? No. Bodies. If you go there now in the tower, um, 
it is they, they they really sell it that it was Richard. Really of sell it. They do. Yeah, it's Everyone interesting. Everyone likes a, a, a wicked, easy, yeah, a Disney villain. And I remember standing up there with Nick, being like, "Actually, we're not sure. We're not sure. We're not <laughs> That's sure." Right. <laughs> That's right. They did find a couple of skeletons in the late seventeenth century. Yeah, but I mean, how would they know? Yeah, there's no DNA nobody test. Knows. It's no. And, and, and the palace won't let them be examined for DNA now. Of course they won't. <laughs> mm-hmm. Much like they won't do a paternity test for Harry. Exactly. Right. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Okay. Because, you know, you don't want to kind of queer the whole pitch for 400, 500 years. Mm-hmm. Be funny, <laughs> That's right. Right? Right, we're going to have to go back and redo the last 500 years. <laughs> Everyone pack your stuff. <laughs> okay, so that was um, a major challenge to her. Oh, yeah, that, that, well, that's right. So that's one way of dealing with it. So that this man is such a monster, mm. he has to be got rid of. Except, the other thing, then? except it's problematic, actually, because as a monster, he was described as a scourge of God. And the theory of divine right of kings says that a, a wicked king must be tolerated because God has put him there to punish you for your naughtiness. But he was a nice king, and okay, all right. But he was a nice king, and I mean, he was a good king. Yeah. No, look, it, it's it's. So it was a stitch up. Yeah. So there's that. We call it the Tudor myth. Okay. Crucial to Elizabeth. The other arm of the Tudor myth mm. is to go back to the idea of Arthur, because of course it's a Welsh dynasty. And Arthur is Rex Quandam et Futurus, once and in the future. What, the once and future. Once and future, yes. Yes, yes. That's right. Because um, he's coming back. It's another Christ. Exactly. Yeah. And so, predictably, Henry VII named his firstborn son Arthur. Oh, we want to do that. Okay. Oh, mm. Well, I'll just... He's yes. the once and future king. Well, he is. Well, he would have been, but he turned up his toes too soon, unfortunately. Oh, well. And that's why... But, I mean, you know, you couldn't be more blatant, could you? Calling your son Arthur, he's going to be the next king. Yeah, okay. To establish an Arthurian dynasty. And, of course, Spencer is peddling like mad here to reinforce that notion of Arthurian and therefore ultimately divine authority for the Tudor dynasty. Mm. So, and, and you see how interestingly this plugs into the myth of the Church of England that we spoke about in book one, where you're not innovating, you're not producing something new. You are returning to origins, yeah. to, to the purity, the essence, the corrupted... When you are absolutely doing something new. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Right, okay, it would be, yeah, yeah. Because you're living in a, in a culture which still distrusts novelty. Mm, and well, that hasn't changed. <laughs> trust tradition. That's, That's why the Conservatives always have that to fall back on, don't they? Mm. Yeah, mm. it was better in the past. We should go back to that. No, you just want a more oppressive now. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So those are the two prongs. Okay. And he's basically peddling the Arthurian thing. That's why, you know, that's why it's so important that Arthur is at the centre of each of the six books. Mm. It's, a, it's, a, it's a whole Arthur as prince, not yet king, of course. And oh, well, we're going to find out here. Elizabeth is descended from him, or Elizabeth Mary's? is descended. Well, because Arthur's Gloriana, Gloriana, Gloriana marries him. It's a fun Elizabeth, triangle. Yeah, Gloriana is in some ways a representation of Elizabeth, but insofar as she marries Arthur, she marries Arthur as the English Church. Yeah. I, I said it. Yeah. <laughs> and also the, you know, the the, the power of England, mm. the, the empire, the empire of England. It's very important that Elizabeth declared herself to be Empire of England. And 
which sounds odd to us because we think of empire as meaning going out and conquering lots of countries and taking Sticking over. flags and things. Yeah, that's fine. But empire didn't mean that then. Empire meant a ruler who was sovereign in their own right within their territories. Okay. Now, every Catholic king of Europe was in theory subject to the Pope. The Pope. And many of them also theoretically subject to the Holy Roman Emperor. Mm. So they weren't emperors. The King of France was not an emperor. He was just a king. So to make the claim that you are emperor, what you're doing is saying that I, Elizabeth, I'm not only head of the secular realm of England, but also the English church. And therefore, mm. ain't nobody can't tell me what to do. Right. I am my own version of Pope, but not a Pope. Yes. Yeah. I'm Popess. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. You, you know about Pope Joan, don't you? Don't know about Pope Joan. Oh, well, Pope Joan was probably mythical, but it was the idea that a woman had... Had a go. <laughs> we have. <laughs> and got herself. So this would have been in the 12th century, if it happened, and it probably didn't. But ever since, ever since the episode of Pope Joan, if it happened which it maybe did, because the records of popery were a bit confused then, because sometimes there were two popes uh-huh. competing. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, some, well, at one point there was three, right? Yeah, so, the, the, you know, it wasn't that straightforward. Mm. That's nice, it's nice to know. It's nice to know. But now, there's part of the process of making a pope, is, you know, you carry the pope on a litter over the heads of the cardinals. and They're crazy. <laughs> the pope as carried on this litter, must be untrousered, so to speak, must be on display. All right. And, and at least one of the cardinals is, is required to say, boop. <laughs> Testiculos habet et bonum pendentes. You have to say that. Yes. Basically that he has balls. He's balls and, they, and they're hanging well. Because he's bene, virile. Bene pendentes. Sorry, bene pendentes. Yeah, yeah. he's virile. Exactly. At least one. But they all... Wow. Wow. That's mad. <laughs> They're still doing this? I don't know. Possibly they... Possibly. I'm going to write a letter and find out. <laughs> okay. Right. Mm. So, ain't no women sneaking in. It's just one big horny huh. parade. Also slightly mad. That, yes. <laughs> Every week you've told me something that blows my mind. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. All right. Right. Yes. Synthesize it into the system. Okay. <laughs> so that concludes our introduction to... Our little introduction to Canto 10. <laughs> and it shows that it actually has quite a lot of importance in, in the structure of the work. Uh, the whole work, really, because, as we've said, Gloriana, who is Arthur's... Maybe wife. Maybe wife. And and also, of course, early reputation Elizabeth is central to the poem. Mm-hmm. It's called the Fairy Queen, after all. Mm-hmm. And that, therefore, in a sense, Elizabeth, Elizabeth's own legitimacy and polity and power and all these things are at the very heart of the poem. Mm. From beginning it's to end. It's central to developing her authority. Yes. Yeah. Really, he should have been paid a lot more than what he was. Oh, noodles more. Because he was pretty foundational to establishing English authority. Well, very much so. Culturally, yeah. Yeah, 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 crucial. And English poetry. And English poetry. Absolutely. Well, as we've said, 
you know, Spencer's often called the poet's poet. Poet's poet. People keep returning to him. Mm. All the biggies. Mm. Milton, Pope, Tennyson. Yeah, absolutely. So we begin. <laughs> Our 80 stanzas. Oh, yes. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Um, we begin then um, with. We, we probably won't look in detail at every single. We'll cover the. Yeah. Yep. Because it's not good. And let me explain why. Let me explain why. I, I was saying earlier that, um, that they had a conviction that history was more than simply a series of events. Just bam, 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 bam. That behind it all, you could perceive, if you were canny and cunning, you could perceive a kind of guiding hand. God is the great stage manager, and he is writing the overall shape of the play, even though in places it may not be apparent, it may be obscured by what happens to happen. So God doesn't govern every single detail. And so I think what Spencer is saying here is quite interesting, is that you know, fiction is one thing. Fiction gives us beautiful structures with beginnings and middles and ends, like a tragedy or a comedy. History gives us what looks like a shambles. But if you're clever enough, you can peer through the shambles to see those providential patterns, which are, again, plot-shaped about, um, about crime and redemption and resurrection and reconciliation and all these various things, or about, in here, the, the progress of a people, which, of course, is for Spencer the heart of any epic poem. Mm. And therefore, there's a sense in which these books are at the heart of the Fairy Queen as an epic poem about the history of England. Mm. But the point is that you mustn't expect that history is going to reveal itself, you know, instantly. Oh, that's how it all works. Yeah. Wacko. So it's going to look like a mess. He's giving you what looks like a mess, but he reassures you that behind the mess... Discordia concord? Yes. Mm. Excellent. Well, it looks like a mess in the midst. You zoom out and actually it's... Exactly. Ordered. Yeah. Which is almost the, the most fundamental ordering principle of the Fairy Queen. Yeah. Um, sometimes expressed as qua vidit poinais medicina. What looks like a, med- uh, uh, a punishment is actually a medicine. Exactly. Exactly. I'm catching on. <laughs> <laughs> so behind it all, God is... Well, I'm not putting the strings exactly, but yeah. and maybe that's just a kind of demeaning image. He's in know. charge of the lights. He's in charge of the lights. <laughs> and the mood music. Yeah. <laughs> he puts the lights on the Lancastrians and then, exactly. you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Who now shall give unto me words and sounds equal unto this haughty enterprise? You see, it's not just, it's not just two blokes sitting around down to read a book in a empty room in a castle. No. This is important. Or who shall lend me wings with which ground my lowly verse may loftily arise and lift itself unto the highest skies? More ample spirit than with hitherto than hitherto was wont here needs me while the famous ancestries of my most dreaded sovereign I recount by which all earthly princes she doth far surmount. So it's, 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 yeah, it's, he sets that up. He does right. Yes. <laughs> Mood change. Mood change, yes, exactly. Now the sun that shines so far and wide, so wide and fair, whence all that lives doth borrow life and light, lives aught that to a lineage may compare, 
which though from earth it be derived right, it doth itself stretch forth to heaven's light, height. So it's derived from earth, derived correctly, rightly, but also derives its rights from. So it's rather important. In other words, he's making a very interesting point here, actually, if you think about it politically. Because the the kind of um, prevailing idea that you get coming in with James is, is the idea purely of the divine right of kings. God sets King James the first there. God knows why, because, you know, he could have done better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. It's crazy, man. That's right. And... You, you're not allowed to question um, or, or disobey him because God put him there. Now, a bit like the Chinese idea of the mandate of heaven. Mm. But what he's saying here is much more complicated because she's saying Elizabeth derives her her position both from God's sanction but also from the earth. From In other words, it's that big debate that the, the civil war is trying to solve. Does power descend from both or God's does it grow from, from beneath? Low, yeah by the consent of the government. Yeah. Now, Elizabeth, you, you could maintain that myth with Elizabeth because she was so clever at dealing with Parliament. Yeah. She didn't just try to dismiss them or just squeeze them for some cash and then send them home. There was a the real communication. Yes. Yeah, and respect. And respect. And a sense that the, the government of England wasn't simply one woman doing it all, mm. but that it was a sort of... Cohesion? A cohesion affair, yes, between... Yeah. Uh, of, of the various estates of the realm. And she didn't swear realm. herself in as health minister. <laughs> no, she didn't. On the, no, she on the, trusted uh, the people in charge. She did. <laughs> she delegated. <laughs> yes. Yeah, OK. She wasn't a mad narcissist. Mm. <laughs> which, is, mm. which is good. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that Spencer is recounting a more interesting and more complex myth of the origin of royal power. And for him, of course, Royal power, we're talking about Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. He hasn't met James. But that it comes from beneath and from above and yeah. meets in the middle, and that's rather nifty. And if somehow that could have been sustained, we wouldn't have had a civil war. Well, but we wouldn't have paradise lost. True. <laughs> that's true. Oh, there's a silver lining to it. <laughs> <laughs> but so those two lines, lives all that to her lineage may compare, which though from earth it be derived right. Now, when right is a lovely pun, it doth itself stretch forth to heaven's light, and all the world with wonder overspread, is the most important lines in, in historically in, in yeah. this part of the poem. How shall frail pen with fear disparaged conceive? <laughs> yeah, bet. But of course, he doesn't mean fear that she's going to chop his hands off, although that wasn't an unreasonable fear. But you had to, you had to really piss her off to mm. get your hands off. She was reasonable. She was reasonable. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Like a mafia boss, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 she, she was reasonable. But it's more like fear of God. It's like awe. Yeah, awe sublime. Majesty. Yes, yeah. exactly. Response to sublime stimulus. Exactamente, yes. Yes, 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 Which yes, was yes, kicking yes. around at this time. And which we have seen already portrayed in... Belle Phoebe. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. But the thing was, Longinus wasn't translated yet. And they didn't have him. So it was just an idea that was being kicked around, separate. He would have been... I mean, there were people who could read Greek, of course. No question. Did they have him, though? I can't find any... Oh, you mean printed? Yeah. Published. 1554, he's printed in France. Oh, well, yeah, there would have been... 
I just can't find anything in England. This is I will take this out. This is a PhD problem yes. now. Yes. <laughs> I'm having worth having a look though, isn't it? I, I have. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've scrounged. Um, I've what about the library of Sir John Chick? Oh yes, a field of Spanish All right. Conceive such sovereign glory and great bounty head. Question mark. I like that. He doesn't yeah. often end. No. It stands with a question mark. No. And great bounty head. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, that could have been a little hint, couldn't it? You know, he's looking for great bounty head from his birth. <laughs> <laughs> Please. <laughs> well, I mean, she, she, she gave him a thousand pounds, I think, a year. Yeah, but... But he never got it, of course. Because, because of, of... The machinations of Cecil. Yes. Yeah, bugger Cecil. <laughs> Argument worthy of Maronian quill. The timer. That's right. Sorry, Maronian quill. I'm sorry, I misread Maronian? I, I read the Maronian thinking of Virgil. Um, you can it's that. never not funny. <laughs> <laughs> I keep them in. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> okay. okay, but Meonian. But again, it's the it's the idea of you know the transfer of empire and so on. So we, it's just as, just yeah. the same really. Or other worthy of great Phoebus wrote when the ruins of great Oxford Hill and triumphs of Phlegrian Jove he wrote that all the gods admire his lofty note. So this is basically. Homer wrote the first nationalist. Well, Homer, yeah. whoever he was, or they were. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. All the Greeks get together to kick a bit of, you know, Trojan ass. ass. That's For right. Ten years. For ten years. Yes. <laughs> yes. Not not a signal success. No. And then they they win by subterfuge, getting to be less and less impressive. It is. Yes. <laughs> But if some relish of that heavenly lay his learned daughters would to me report, muses of course, to deck my song withal, I would have say the same, my name, O sovereign queen, to blazon far away. So it's another invocation of the muse, but. Yeah. Yeah. And notice that. that the queen is the muse. Well, she is, sort yeah. Of, yeah. And, and, and in, a, in a very nifty little way here, because. He uses that word blazon. Now, he means mm-hmm. trumpet. But he also means emblematic representation of... of... female beauty. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And again, the trumpet, that, that's actually cool because trumpet is like power, authority, war, yeah. masculinity. That's right. Blazon, poetic device representing women. Yes. We fuse we the fuse two. We fuse them in a, in a wonderful solipsis. Ooh. Oh. Yes. A fusionary solipsis, you could call it. Nice. <laughs> Excellent stuff. People never think of Spencer as a kind of tricksy poet, but, but, but he is. We've poisoned me because it's all <laughs> and I pick fights with everyone else. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thy name, O sovereign queen, thy realm and race, from this renowned prince derived are, um, Arthur, of course. Yes. Who mightily upheld that royal mace which now thou bearest, thee descended far from mighty king and conquerors in war. Mm, so you can see. Conquerors. Conquerors. Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Not only does he say that, the next line he uses the word grandfather yeah. when he really means forefathers. But of course, her grandfather. The literal was. grandfather. Yeah. Was the conqueror. He was a conqueror. Yeah. Uh, but didn't claim yes. conquerors, but he was conqueror. And then readers would have known this. Yes. yes. Oh, yes. It's yes. All this is. This is. This is. Um, oh. What's the word? Rich. Dog whistling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dog yeah. Whistling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By fathers and great grandfathers of old, whose noble deeds above the northern star, the immortal fame forever hath enrolled. As in that old man's book, 
the word in order told. The land which warlike Britons now possess. It's very, it's, I mean, it's the most epic part of this poem, in a way, these, these mm. opening stanzas. Yeah. It's a wonderful kind of... The land which warlike Britons now possess, and therein have their mighty empire raised. Notice, again, notice that word empire? Mm-hmm. He's, you might think, he's just using it to mean power. No. No, he is carefully... He's carefully using it to taking mean... Taking a path, yeah. The path, and the path is that England is not only a civil realm but it's also its own spiritual realm. Mm. And that makes it an empire. And a seat of power and authority. seat of power, yes. And it all goes to Elizabeth. So she is empress. <laughs> she's, she's the man. Yeah. <laughs> Testiculos habet et bene pendentes. Um, well, I mean... She has the balls. Yes. <laughs> Only metaphorically. <laughs> it was a direct translation, wasn't it? That's right. Yeah. She got the balls. <laughs> the land and so on in antique times was salvage wilderness <laughs> that's the that's the metaphor that's the myth yeah. it came from just again it's the idea that there were just people wandering about oh. there was no order it was just wilderness yeah. it was like hello it was inhabited that's right okay that's e- that's exactly right because you see you think well I, really these ideas are floating around there yeah, absolutely they were because the whole justification for taking Virginia from the Indians yeah was that the Indians were wandering about on the surface not mixing their labour with the land therefore not possessing the land therefore to be dispossessed of what they didn't possess. Um, White people logic. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Because they're not human. Yeah. You know, can a fox possess land? No. Um, because the other argument was that they were actually human beings devoid of the light of revelation yeah. and needed to be... Saved. By force, if necessary. Mm. Um which, of course, kind of contradicts with the notion that they're just animals. Animals, people, they're both useful ideas, but they don't fit together. No, contradictory. They're a bit contradictory. Yeah, and then it goes unpeopled, unmanured? Un- oh. Unpeopled, unmanured, yes, unproved, unpraised. That, they'll say unmanured? Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, people are shitting everywhere, but they're not doing it... <laughs> yes. <laughs> As in un... They're not doing it in a structured way. Yeah. Let's put our manure... Here. Yeah. Okay. Because that'll be just right for. The They're crops. just spreading shit around. <laughs> yes. That's right. That's right. Like a dog on a walk. Okay. Like a dog on a walk. So it's a nice touch actually on manured, because it, you're invoking the idea of human agency. Anybody can shit, <laughs> but you can do it in the right place. <laughs> right. Now was it island then, or was it paved? It's very interesting to say it wasn't an island then, because they didn't know about the great. Um, what's it called? Tectonic. Then? Well, no, it's not tectonic, exactly. It's to do with the... Continental drift. No. No, 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 nothing, nothing so... Blanks and... No, that's, the scale of time there is just way out. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> what happened? No, what happened was that um, at the last ice age... Yes. Lots and lots of seawater frozen up in, into glaciers. Therefore, seawater falls, sea level falls. Oh, there was a land bridge. There was a, a huge land bridge. To France. To France, most of most of the North Sea was just land. Oh wow! And it's got it's, it's called something like the dog. It's like where the Dogger Bank is now. You know, the Dogger Bank is a oh, well, it's a very shallow part of the, the channel. Channel. Oh wow! Um, but it was just land. Wow! You, you could stroll in, stroll out. 
Now, there's no way Spencer knew about that. Oh. So, well, I, it's a discovery of yeah. archaeology. Unless it was in something that he'd read or that was very memory. old. Yeah, well, folk memory is powerful, as we have established. Yes, and, yeah. and, and indeed, Aboriginal memories of exactly the same event, of the land, the waters returning to a previously revealed land after the Ice Age, wow. right round the coast of Australia. And that goes back 7,000 years. Wow. Wow. I know. Wow, wow, indeed. We're all just monkeys in shoes. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> I think we know what's going on. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but the advantage the Aboriginals had was stable, persistent occupation of a, a region. Yeah, now, in Europe, they weren't got, bothered. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For a while. <laughs> but in, in, in Europe, you've got people wandering hither and thither and yon and up and down and... Forward it's hard to forward. Pre- yes, exactly. <laughs> hard to preserve that kind of folk memory. Yeah. So I'm not entirely certain, I have to confess. That's very interesting, though. Mm, it is interesting, isn't it? And the sort of thing that if we were teaching this in an undergraduate unit, we would just skip over. So, yes. again, power of podcasting. Exactly, exactly, exactly. The basic idea, though, is that England is unclaimed, it's wild, it's savage, it's full of giants. Uh-huh. For some reason, giants are always seen as kind of savage and... I'm sure they're lovely. Yes. Yeah. I don't know, but they've got a bad rep. Okay. Giants. Well, of course, they were meant to be giants before the flood. And in the Christian scheme? In the Christian scheme. All right. Oh, yeah, because and they were mean and yeah. God wiped them out. That's right. And God of course, put them there, though. And some of the devils had had it away with mortal women and produced giants. And oh. Something, cool. something about de- devil DNA. It's, it's got that extra... No comment. Uh, that must have made childbirth very difficult. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 did it then deserve a name to have? You know, it didn't even deserve a name, this place. Mm. To let the venturous mariner the way learning his ship from those white rocks to save, which all along the southern seacoast lay in the, famously the cliffs of Dover, mm-hmm. the chalk cliffs, threatening unheedy wreck and rash decay, for safety's sake that same his sea mark made and named it Albion, meaning white place. Alba means white. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's where it comes from, the white cliffs of Dover, because they are quite prominent if you, as you approach. You know, if you approach from the continent, that's the bit you see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But later day, finding it in fit ports for fishers' trade, and more the same frequent and further to invade. Which is almost kind of sociological, historical, isn't it? You know, you, they discover you can you can stay here for a bit in the way people used to fish on King Island before they inhabited it oh okay mm. of course whalers used it too didn't they hmm. cool for non-Australian listeners that is a, a large island in the Bass Strait between the mainland awesome. of Australia and Tasmania and our friends <laughs> <laughs> they make excellent Excellent cheese and cream. But far inland, a salvage nation dwelt with. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a bedtime story, but the evil people. That's right. We, we've actually seen that the notion of being salvage is an ambiguous one. That mm-hmm. Sometimes it's quite good to be away from the corruption of the court, to live a free life in the woods, you know, hunting rabbits and dressing Because that's skin. what Belphabian is doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. right. She's. 
living on our own terms. That's right. Um, men are born free, but are, you know, everywhere slaves, whatever it is. Exactly. Yes, you know, that, that, yes, that, that's a fascinating thing to pursue. It has to be an article, really, because it's kind of revolutionary. Yeah, every time I try and yeah organise the thoughts, I just end up writing the same line and of u- argument. Ultimately, Wikipedia is aimed at clods, isn't it? Yes, you know? I was like, fuck this. <laughs> this is not a good use of my time. <laughs> Maybe one day it would be nice to put it there, because yeah. it's an awful entry, but yeah. It is an awful entry, it's useless. Hideous giants and half-beastly men that never tasted grace. We couldn't be more explicit, could we, that this is... Nope. <laughs> kind of pre-thought. God's lost, yeah. That's right. No goodness felt, but like wild beasts lurking in loathsome den. <laughs> flying, flying vast as roebucks through the fen, all naked without shame or care of cold. See, they're not human, and therefore they're colonisable. Mm. This is the story. Human beings feel shame, whereas animals, animals are naked, but they don't feel shame about their nakedness. Yeah. Indeed, they probably... I mean, some of them have fur, that's nice. Yeah, but if you, if you put a dog in a little coat, it probably feels shame being in the coat. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> yes. By hunting and by spoiling livid then, which means robbing, of course. Although, who were they robbing? Each, Each other. other? Okay. Well, isn't that the point? Like, before the flood, they were all just oh, yes. thieves and fornicators or whatever. Yes. But normally we think of thieves as... Raiding? Pre- uh, yes, as preying upon the civilised or settled society. Hmm. Robbers, bandits. Because thieves produces, pro- thieves proposes property, but if you're living in the woods wearing a bearskin, you don't have much property. No. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. Generally, they're not good people, and therefore, you know. We can colonise them. We can colonise the scum. Them. They need it. It's a moral duty. We have to. They yes. asked for it. <laughs> exactly. What Aristotle says is, as a class of many says, that need to be enslaved for their own good. Which is very handy. Yep. Yep. But whence they sprung, or how they were begot, Aneath is to assure. Aneath to ween that monstrous area which doth somersault, that Diocletian's fifty daughters, sheen into this land by chance, have driven been, were company with fiends and filthy sprites, through vain illusion of their lusts unclean. They brought forth giants and such dreadful whites as far excluded men in their unmeasured mites. So it's an allusion to the whole idea of the Danaides, who fifty daughters who killed all their husbands on their wedding nights. Good for them. Good for them. <laughs> and an assertive act. Yeah. go. <laughs> <Yes. Let's go. laughs> That's right. Why? Why? Well, I think he's presenting this. I think this is an allusion to the myth of the you know, the daughters of Eve lying with devils and producing. Oh, okay. All right. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. But also, there's a hint of witchcraft here, isn't there? <laughs> Always is. Just Always. a sprinkle. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Come, company with fiends and filthy sprites through vain illusion of their lusts unclean. Mm, there it is. Yeah. Okay. Tended to be one of the things that emerged in the... And, and the thing is, people would point to that and say Spencer is a misogynist, but he's not. He's no. just giving us the myth. That's right. Yeah. He's giving yeah. us the myth. Which he's now going to undermine by showing Gloriana as, like... Yes. The most epicist. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly, exactly. It, 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 it's hard to argue this one, perhaps, but it seems to me that the kind of slightly over-the-top, almost parodic quality of the language here signals that Eddie is at the helm here. Yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. <laughs> that we're getting a sort of orthodox, oh yes. Unreliable narrator. Unreliable yeah. narrator, yeah. That's right. One little thing... 
Through vain illusion of their lust unclean, they brought forth giants. How could lust be an illusion? Lust always an illusion? Is there true lust, an illusory lust? Um, he's alluding to the, the idea that in witchcraft, you know, that oh. women went to Sabbaths and copulated with, with the devils. devils. Yeah, so vain illusion, so like... So... Conjuring. Well, there were those contemporary writers, I mean, not everybody's taken in by all this nonsense, who basically said that these things were illusions. They, they did... Women just having... Um, just hallucinating. Having naughty dreams. Good for them. Yes. Again. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean... They, well, well, the point is that they actually... There was some scientific testing of this. And women who were, who had been accused of attending Sabbaths. Because, you know, the problem was, that in English law, there was no way of proving that a witch had gone to a Sabbath and copulated with the enormous cold penis of a... <laughs> Devil. Devil, yes. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't get that in writing or... Or on video. Or on yeah. video, <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, and that's a problem for English law. Not so much on the continent, where they didn't give a toss about evidence, but it was for English law. So I said in English, which has escaped. Lack of evidence. Mm. Or the jury would say, this is a load of cobblers, the jury would say. <laughs> this is some weird chap's fantasy. Uh, yeah. We're not buying any of it. Sent her home. <laughs> <laughs> she has nine children. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which is really pleasing mm. compared to what happened as well. Anyway, <coughs> I was reminded of the, you know, the Blackadder episode with the Witchfinder, the Witchfinder Pursuivant. It's it's one of the best Blackadders of all. It's a medieval. Catch up. I'm rewatching. Oh, yeah, I'm rewatching. Well, this is the one where Frank Finley plays a Witchfinder, <sighs> and he's. Wonderfully insane. Okay. All right. <laughs> have a look at that. Oh yeah, I'll report back. Okay. I have, have. I will have seen it. I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in other words, these things are illusions. Now, what people argued was that, well, yeah, maybe because we want, you know, she was in this locked room all night. Mm. She didn't go out. Yet she wakes up in the morning and claims to have been at a Sabbath and copulating with devils. Well, maybe she. A special essence of her somehow seeped out under the door and attended the Sabbath in spiritual form. And, uh. and actually, vain illusion is a pretty good way of describing this fantasy of witchcraft, yeah. this highly sexualized fantasy of witchcraft from a male perspective. They just really wanted to think about women yeah. getting yeah. boned by devil penises. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. I know. Exhausting. It, 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 it's kind of depressing, actually. Yes. I, weirdly, I was reading a book on, on witchcraft when I was in hospital. Peter! <laughs> I know. I, know I, I picked it up from the pile out there, and the, you know. But it was depressing because, you know, it just had me thinking, well, look, nature has so many ways of, of turning life into shit, you know, diseases and injuries and mm. hunger and stuff. Just a headache back then. No yeah. Panadol. Can't think of anything yeah. worse. We don't need human beings to be inventing more misery. And yeah, well, we're good at it. <laughs> I know. We're very good at that. I know. <laughs> Particularly I know. towards women. I know. We love a bit of that. <laughs> That's the horrible thing about it. And, and, and somehow it mixed with the funny smell of the hospital I mind. To this kind of, kind of depressive miasma. I come out associated all this ghastliness with... That hospital smell. <laughs> so next time you go back in, <laughs> no. not not that you will or necessarily. Yes, just yes. next time you're in a hospital, I'll be suddenly reminded of some obscure dread 
I won't know what it is. I've, I've forgotten. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I think I think he's getting at. I think the overtop language, mm. the nonsensical, because you know, lust is not an illusion. I mean, all lust is an illusion. You, <laughs> you know, I, I, I can't speak from a female point of view, but men are attracted to images, basically, as as, yeah. as we all know. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to be a real human being behind the image. Nope. No. <laughs> if that's not an illusion, I don't know what it is. Yeah. So you can't have illusory lust, but you can have illusions about lust from this male perspective, mm. seeking to control women and their bodies and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, that was, that was kind of a very obvious oppressive lesson that I drew from this. <laughs> so it was useful. Well, really. good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what was the book called? No, witchcraft. Oh, all right. Witchcraft in Europe and Africa by a man called Jeffrey Perinder. Right. There you are. Hmm. You were meant to be resting in hospital. I know. Couldn't help yourself, could you? But but I, um, again, I think it's actually rather interesting. Therefore, that and then brought it's forth giants and dreadful whites. Do we think Spencer thought this? No. Nah, we don't. But we he's don't. he's peddling the party line to yes. undermine the party line. Exactly, because he's just pushing it a little bit too far. Yeah. Just as Richard, as Shakespeare does with Richard III. Yeah, and he any pushes him over the intelligent top. view. Yes. Audience member is going see to what's going see on. what's happening. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the peanut chewing multitude will say, "Oh yeah, I know those witches." That's why they call it a peanut gallery. Yes. They're eating peanuts. That's right. Oh, my God. That's right. That happened too late in my life. <laughs> that's right. Okay. And that's exactly right. And, you know, they're sort of beyond help anyway. Yeah, well. They're going to think this stuff. Yeah. Might as well give them what they want. Uh, what's the equivalent? Beer drinkers in the front stand of the football game? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. A kind of subtle examination of racial tensions or, or you know, um, gender image inequality and, um, yeah is, is not going to penetrate them no instead they're just going to see oh yeah that's right women are like that so Spencer again surprising you by being and again why should you be surprised he's an intelligent man with a kind of complex relation to truth you know this phrase product of his time mm. and that we explain yes. away Assholes as yes. being products of the time. I'm beginning to think more and more that that's not really a case. No. There were nice people and there were bad people. There always have been. And it was easier in the society and in the power structures for the bad people to be in charge. And yes. You've all these ideas. And it was easier for other people to go along with those ideas. It was hard to be a... To be not a bad person. So I don't think it's a product of his time. He was just a bit of a douchebag who peddled the party line at the time because it was easier, and that's what humans do. That's exactly right. And that explains why. So you could get, you know, again, going back to witchcraft in the early 17th century, early to mid-17th century, going up to Matthew Hopkins, the witch finder general. Oh, God. Yeah. It was... You could go a long way peddling these myths, pandering to them. Getting power. Getting power, getting money. Um, getting you know, getting your sadistic jollies. Yeah. All this stuff. Whereas to object to all this and to inject reason, like Reginald Knox. Yeah. Discovery of witchcraft. Yeah. Great man did Reginald Knox. Or, well, I think Shakespeare. You know, obviously Shakespeare doesn't take all this nonsense seriously. No, either. and Shakespeare can't have been alone. Is sort of my point. No. No. There, might, there would have been other good people, yeah. educated people, not even maybe just, maybe not even educated, but, you know, thoughtful. But the trouble is, in that period, and again, this is a rabbit hole, sorry, there was no 
mechanism for opinion to have any kind of effect. No, yeah, you yeah. couldn't write, you couldn't express, you couldn't talk, as if you're a woman. Well, I mean, you could, you, 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 to some extent you could. I mean, Reginald Scott wrote books, mm. but people don't literary. read books. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah, well... You, you couldn't get that idea you, out. You couldn't get it to the, the unwashed multitude. Yeah, and, and what I'm saying is some of the unwashed multitude must have been good people. We just yeah. don't really know. But the point is, they'll believe what they're told. Yes. She turned me into a newt. <laughs> got better. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, that's so true, isn't yeah. it? You know, it's just more and more I'm starting to think that that's hogwash, the product of his time thing. The funny thing is, you know, all that is decades before Marga and... and um, Make Australia, make, make America great again. Oh, oh Marga, right, right, Marga, right, right. Sorry, yeah. And um, you know, QAnon and eating oh. babies and and <laughs> what it looked like wild satire back then now looks actually rather tame. Yeah, people will believe that kind of shit. Yeah, well, they know? will. That's what I mean. We're still living in this world. Yeah, this stuff is still going on. We just have Panadol. That's right. <laughs> like, that's right. <laughs> and we can get places fast right. and build things high. <laughs> like we have so much more knowledge, but we still don't. Not everyone has access to that, mm. and you can't make them. That's right. <laughs> and in fact, most of them are fairly incensed against it. Yeah. Can I say that? Incensed against it. Yeah. Sure. Well, that's right. Yeah. And if you think. You know, part of those Parliament, yes, mm-hmm. full of sensible people to some extent, lawyers and so on. But Parliament was not an organ of policy. It didn't make policy. Its sole job was to vote money mm-hmm. and to sort of, you know, get cosy with the king. But the idea of actual law and policy and so on, this was to be driven by the king and the king's court, mm-hmm. not by anybody else. And, you know... If if, he, if the king was a fantasist like James I, then that drove lawmaking about things like witchcraft. And there was just no way to <coughs> circumvent that. Really till the 18th century, I suppose. Hmm. And of course, that's when witchcraft laws disappear. 1730s. I think 1735? I guess. Yeah, it was just easy and interesting for men to... Yeah. And women. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you, in, in the Monty Python skit, which is so on the nose, the, witch, on, the, yeah. witch, the witch, in fact, is, is not some sort of hag or crone. She's, She's a rather a beautiful attractive... beautiful young woman. Yes. And they've, and they've put it on her. They've That's put a right. costume on her to That's make right. her look like a witch. That's right. <laughs> it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <sighs> Quite. <laughs> so, and oh, yeah, yeah. yes. Next stanza, they held this land with their filthiness, polluted the same gentle for a long time. And again, you get that sense that Eddie is just a bit... It's a Marga figure. Yes, it's a bit over Dirty. the top. Filthiness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, polluted. the Black Books episode. Dirty. <laughs> <laughs> Some gentle soil, long time. <laughs> Actually, see, if they're polluting the, the gentle soil, they're, they're manuring it. So, <laughs> well, with the wrong stuff. <laughs> well, I don't know. Oh, okay. It all works. Polluting, but polluting implies doing bad I know, manuring. But that's the joke, and I'm getting okay. trying to get Oh, there. okay, right, right, that's, right, right. That's his joke. Bad that's manuring. Spencer's joke. Okay, yes. okay, sorry. Is there bad manuring? Is not all manure good manure? <laughs> the real question. <laughs> that's a real question. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay. Well, you don't want it in the living room. No. 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 Shit. What is it? Shit is best when spread around, but that's not always. Bacon. Yeah, bacon. <laughs> yes. But not. Yeah, not in the living room. Money is like manure, not good unless it be spread around. Yeah. 
polluted the same gentle soul long time, that their own mother loathed their beastliness and can abhor her brood's unkindly crime. All were they born of her own native slime. Until the Brutus anciently derived from royal stock of old oh. Asaric's line. Asaric, Asaricus is the grandfather of Aeneas. There's your useless fact for the day. Okay. So Asaricus begets Anchises. Who begets Aeneas. Priam. And also Brutus and probably Francus. Right. Wait, Priam who begets Aeneas. Oh, sorry, Priam. Uh, I think Priam is another name for Anchises. Oh, oh, no. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Now, hold on, I might be confused here. Might have to check this one. The fact checking. Imaginary Trojan lineages. <laughs> he is a member of the junior branch of the royal family of Troy. While he is turning his sheep on Mount Ida, the goddess Aphrodite met him and enamored of his beauty bore him Aeneas. So oh. he is. So Aeneas is not son to Priam. He's no, he's not son to Priam, but he's very much part of the. Vaguely related. The clan. Okay. A bit like, a bit like you know, little George or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, okay. But the point is, he's got, he's got the mojo. He's got the mojo. In his balls. Got it. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. Just as, in, as I say in some traditions, Brutus's actual relation here is a little more complicated. He's grandson, grandnephew, he's, but they're all... It's the same source. They're all shoving up the same stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, yes, this stanza is... is I haven't quite finished yet. Sorry. It's like Bruce, anciently derived from royal stock of older Sarek's line, driven by fatal error, he had arrived, fatal error. Oxymoron. Well, it is, isn't it? An error, but it's driven by the fates. Ultimately, as we know, that fates in the Fairy Queen referred to Providence. So, again, it looks like an error, but it's really a good thing. Just as it looks like a mistake that Red Cross rushes into the cave of error, but it's actually part of the process of educating him. So mm. you're driven onto the rocks. Oh dear! And what's that amazing is, of course, that's how the famous um, discovery of Bermuda was represented in, in 1604. So post this, but in 1604, <coughs> part of the expedition of Gates to North to Virginia was driven by. They were separated by a storm, and Gates's ship was driven onto the rocks to Bermuda. But it looked providential because instead of being smashed against the rocks, they were wedged between two rocks, allowing them after the storm to get off the ship and go onto the island. And the island looked providential because it never had human beings. Therefore, all the, you know, the birds and the game were perfectly tame. Little poem there. <laughs> now, a bird comes, settles on your hand, bop, there's dinner. Yeah, you don't, yeah, oh, poor bird. I know. I know. <laughs> But it looks like paradise. Mm. Where, where, we found uh, it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> was here all along. <laughs> exactly. And God is therefore speaking to you. He's yeah. saying, oh, English people, go forth and colonise this wonderful new bounteous Exhausting. realm. Yeah. Wow. So it the audacity like, of us. <laughs> that's right. But God speaks to us through apparent error, which turns out to be providential. Right. Uh, I mean, Spencer didn't know this or foresee it, but... Yeah. But the point is, he... He knows the habit of mind that interprets in this way. The hermeneutics of the yes. English-speaking world. <laughs> the hermeneutics of the imperialist, yeah. the colonizer. The, and, 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 and also, look at this. I, I love this last line. Driven by fatal error, here arrived, and then with their unjust possession, derived... Again, another oxymoron, unjust, unjust possession. possession. They, they possessed. Do. Yeah, well, they are possessed, but they're not possessed. They're not possessed so you can dispossess them, but you can't dispossess them if they are possessed. Yeah. 
So you, you're driven into this logical quandary. Which is where all colonialism occurs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We've justified, kind of. Well, we're exactly. going to say we are. <laughs> yes, exactly. God said so, probably. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so we're here. Exactly. And it's much harder if you sort of break into someone's house and steal their computer. I mean, it is breaking and entering. Yeah, That's it what, is. Oh, yeah, we know. It is, exactly. It's breaking and entering. But it had to be represented as not just acceptable larceny, <laughs> that might be, but as God-driven, mm. as virtuous, as noble. And so there were all sorts of, yeah, logical quandaries that the that they were driven into, including the fact that you had to simultaneously think of these people as human and not human to justify in two quite different ways their enslavement. But people can tolerate a lot of contradiction if it's bringing in the spondulics. <laughs> mm, we can. So this, I mean, this is the crazy thing that, you know, in, in this period, 16th, 17th century in particular, you've got a Europe which is full of these powerful seagoing nations like the English and the Spanish and the Dutch who conquer and enslave territories and steal their gold. And they're all claiming to be driven by Christianity, which is essentially a deeply pacifist, you turn the other cheek, if a man nicks your trousers, offer him your underpants too. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's, that's a paraphrase. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also um, recommends the community of goods, mm. you know. So it's deeply pacifist and communist in the original sense of communist. Yes. And this is this drives a violent, murderous, imperialistic, centuries-long agenda. How does that work? People, we fuck everything <laughs> up. <laughs> Am I wrong? <laughs> no. People's inability to think. Yeah. And to steer any kind of ideology to their own purposes. No, God approves of slavery. Well, of course he does. Because we're slaves and we're Christians. We're slave owners, sorry. Mm. We're Christians, therefore God must approve slavery. Mm. Makes sense. Yeah. Now, we mustn't imagine Spencer doesn't see all this. No, he knows. He knows. He knows. That's the whole point, is he's <laughs> laying it on a bit too thick. That's right. Um, yes, exactly. And of their unjust possession. Now, you know, the intelligent reader is going to read this. Unjust possession deprived. Hello. What? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. Oh. We we see <laughs> Eddie an Eddie who was smarter could have skirted that more deftly. Yeah, the point is he drove the ship straight yes. through it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And made a huge explosion on the yes. way for us to notice. Exactly. Otherwise he could have just been like boop, boop, boop. That's right. That's right. Exactly. But ere he had established his throne and spread his empire to the utmost shore, he fought great battles with his salvage foam, in which he then defeated evermore and many giants left on groaning floor. And well can witness yet unto this day the western, the western hoch, besprinkled with the gore of mighty Goemot, whom in stout fray Corinius conquered and cruelly slain. So there's just going to be a lot of names. A lot of names. Really, uh, you'd go mad if you tried to pay attention uh, to everyone. Yeah. I mean... And, and, and the point here is they represent it as they've... This is a good thing. Yes. The giants are dead. We've giants got, like, dead. we have achieved something. We've cruelly slain them and they, that's good. Yeah. Because they're bad. Giants, yeah. bad. And... Be us good. <laughs> Which is... Uh, 
an absurd way of looking at history, and that's, again, the point yes. Spencer is exactly. playing it up. Yeah, He's playing it up to the hilt. Exactly. And then there's a confusing stanza, and eke that ample pit, yet far renowned for the large leap which Devon did compel Coonan to make, being eight lugs of ground, into the which returning back he fell, but those three monstrous stones do most excel, which that huge son of hideous Albion, whose father Hercules in France did quell, great godmet through in fierce contention at bold Canutus. But of him was slain alone. And you read that and you think, oh, God. The what? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, he also, he kind of does do the one god, one damn thing after another in order to be able to say, and out of yeah. that chaos comes Elizabeth. That's like, right. that's part of the game. That's, <laughs> yeah. that, that's exactly right. And, and making the point that you can't perceive, that it's not obvious. Yeah, yeah, it's just... But all right, yes, there's a fine it, line yes. between not being obvious and actually being uh, you know, post... Applied, if you like. Yeah, this is what always interests me about people who write history. Like, I get a biography, that that whatever. But if you're trying to represent like World War One yes. as a series of events, you have to order them and yes. curate them. You have to present it in a certain way. Yeah, that's right. And then, you have to tell a story. Yeah. But the, the inevitable thing is that <laughs> actual history is always going to be more complex than any story you can tell about it. Mess. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. There's actually. I'll, I'll read. I'll just read. Um, I'll just read the note we've got in, in Hamilton here on that. It's quite interesting. Although I just read. A confusing stanza. Because <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> its construction is that ample pit also bears witness to the battle against the giants, but the three stones best bear witness. Best bear witness. Albion, a legendary giant, was killed in France by Hercules. His son, Godmer, threw the stones at Canutus. Debans defeat of Coolin is referred to briefly at 3950.45, where again it follows the story of Goemot or Gogamog. Thanks, Hamilton. Yes. <laughs> it seems to be Spencer's invention, as also is Godmer's defeat. Yeah. Thanks, okay. Obama. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's what you call. Um, Poor scholarship. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Obscurus per obscurior. It's, it's explaining the obscure by the more obscure. Yeah. So the footnote yeah. really doesn't help. Yes. And obviously Spencer's doing this deliberately. In a sense, he's, he's saying, look, you're peering into a fog here. It's going to be hard to make sense of this. Have fun. Have yeah. Fun. But, uh, but also, I suppose, making the point that that's what history looks like close up. Yeah, when you're in it. When you're in it. Yeah. You're in it. The fog of war. We did say that we weren't going to deal with every single detail here. Yes. And I think we should have to be true to our, our word. Absolutely. Yes. I will point out that in stanza 13, line 3, I have a note saying, P. Grove's silliest line in Spencer. Oh, really? And it goes, loved of his friends and of his foes. Stupid. Oh, it's true. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> a little gift from the past. <laughs> uh, I've forgotten that. But actually, 13 is important. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, just because we get the first mention of Brutus. Mm. Thus, Brute, this realm unto his rule subdued, and reigned long in great felicity, loved of his friends and of his foes astute. Duh. Yeah, well, okay. He left three sons, his famous progeny, born of uh, Imogen of Italy. So, Rome... 
Yeah. Well, is that the connection? Like, well, no. I've been tying it back a bit. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's maybe. like we have authority from Troy and from Rome. Suck it, France. But, but then, of course, yeah. Well, I'm a good point. Yeah. But Roman authority is Trojan, of course, in origin. Yeah. But, so, getting, but it's double. You're two it's, strands. You're getting a double strands, like yeah. like two bits it's of chocolate more, in your ice cream. Um, what's the opposite of diluted? Yes. Um, <laughs> strengthen. Yeah. Potent. Potent. Mm. Okay. Potent. Sure. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, invigorated. Mm. 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 Yeah. Monks Tumi parted his imperial state, and Locrine left chief lord of Brittany. At last, ripe age him had bade him surrender late his life, and long good fortune unto final fate. We also find later on that he founds London, or or is the second founder of London, but of course that's not. Londinium. Yes. Well, yeah. Mm. They were a bit hazy about all that. (laughs) To be honest. Where they ended up, right? Well, that's right. Out of the mud. That's right. Big river. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it was founded, as we know, by the Romans. Mm-hmm. An important crossing point. It's probably the closest crossing point to before the estuary really spreads out and divides. Mm. So if you're trading with Europe, it's the best place. To go from, because it's still protected inland. Yeah. But yeah, it's not on the sea. It's not a sea-dwelling town. That would be dangerous. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's where London Bridge was first built by the Romans. And really, the current London Bridge is not much removed from so London Bridge has been around for 2,000 years you mean London Bridge well it's now called New London Bridge yes okay yeah it used to be London Bridge for centuries not the one at the tower down up a bit Uh, up a little bit yeah okay but tower end of things okay this is is London Bridge that Spencer would have known Shakespeare would have known with all the houses it was a shopping mall essentially yeah because there was only one crossing for some time right yeah it was was the only crossing exactly up to the 1730s. It's wild. It is wild. Why did no one build another one? I know. Would have been useful. I know. Absolutely useful. Absolutely useful. They had the technology. They had. But I suppose there were all sorts of reasons and funding and, you know, different social organisations. I suppose there were boats too. You could have just paid someone to take whisk you across. Well, a lot of it, I mean, we used, used ferry, not ferries, um, more like taxis on the water. Would you water taxis. <laughs> like water taxis. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Aquabus. Mm. So, so the, you'd hire a chap, you'd say, my good man, let me give you threepence to ferry me across the river. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, south of the river was where you went to play. You know, you didn't... Oh, the, you, you did. Know, everything else happened on the north side. You're looking for brothels, bear, bear baiting, theatre. Theatre. Any kind of naughtiness. Yeah, that's where you went. Well, because it was owned by the Bishop of Winchester. And if you play the Assassin's Creed that is set in London, when you go south of the bridge, that's where all the bad stuff happens, right? Oh, right. That's where all the awful quests are. You go north of the bridge, you're talking to Dickens, you're, you know, you're having a great time. <laughs> People will understand. <laughs> okay. I promise. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, if you're going south, you're probably going for a, a wild night out. <laughs> Going to crown. <laughs> That's right. For some reason, it was a tradition of elaborate, inventive, obscene abuse to be exchanged between watermen as they passed each other. That checks out. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Monash students passing Melbourne uni students on the trams. Oh, right, yes. <laughs> or footy fans. Yes. Yeah. Uh, any, any kind of group. Yeah, there it is, yeah. Yes. 
marines and, and naval servicemen in the years. At one point, Johnson, Samuel Johnson, was being ferried across, and some bargemen gave him a bit of a spew, mm-hmm. and he responded with, Sir, your wife, <laughs> under pretense of being a keeper, a receiver of stolen goods, is mistress of a body house. Which was maybe too elaborate for the... <laughs> your, your wife's a whore? Yeah, basically. basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <yeah. Yes. laughs> nice. Yes. Oh, yes. We, oh, yes, yes. Brute. Good old Brute. So Brute is pretty important because he gives his name to the island and he is our, he's our fundamental link to... The House of Priam. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got Locrine left a sovereign. Ah, and then look, the 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 chronology here is kind of dreamlike. Mm-hmm. If you think of Brutus, Brutus has to be vaguely associated with Aeneas and the founding of Rome. Now, as you know, that's a little before seven. 53 BC mm. ab urbe condita that's how the Romans measured their dates from the founding of the city mm. well the national founding of the city so let's say 1000 BC roughly but now look at this next stanza until the nation Locrine is in charge until the nation strong with visage swart and courage fits that all men did affray which through the world then swarmed in every part and overflowed all countries far away like Ner's great flood with their importune sway this land invaded with like violence did themselves through all the north display until that Locrine for his realm's defence did head them against the make of strong munificence head means these are the Huns now when did the Huns come? Mm, oh, later <laughs> a long time later <laughs> much later 1500 years later yeah that'll do it yeah in, the, in roughly the uh, they come in the 5th century AD okay wow and they don't get to England at all I, I was Yes. Yeah, waiting for you to explain when, because I'm like, oh, yeah. yeah, okay. So this is like fantasy history. Mm-hmm. It's you know, it's make pretend. Got it. Well, yeah. <clears throat> and now um, you get the feeling that Spencer must know this because yeah. Hunnish history was not. Yeah, people knew Roman history. It's, it's more that Roman he's historians. trying to figure out the amount of indicators that it's not real. Like yes. it's just like, and I'll throw a bit of that in. What else yes. didn't happen? I'll throw a bit of that in, exactly. just to give you every opportunity. And again, as always, you've got two kinds of reader. You've got the reader who says, "What are the Huns doing here?" <laughs> I mean, either either Spencer's gone a bit mad, or he's saying, "Yeah, don't take this at face value." Yeah. Where is you? I mean, on the other hand, how many peanut munching readers of the Fairy Queen are there going to be? Maybe not so many, but there will be. There will be people who are reasonably intelligent, but have very orthodox, tightly buttoned-down minds, mm-hmm. or not the necessary education. Yeah. 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 Or yes, exactly. Or they may not know their history. Yeah. Huns, runs, they may say. <laughs> <laughs> or not check the footnote. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Um, is there a footnote? I'm just curious. Oh yeah, he gets the fact that it refers to the Huns. But he's got nothing to say about the fact that the Huns really were there. Wow. 1,500 years out of... Hamilton. Well done, Hamilton. The thing is, he would have been a paid academic. I know, yes. Raking it in. Well, not raking it in. <sighs> but yes, we've often toyed with the, the notion of redoing. On the other hand, it'd be a big task, wouldn't it? But you could do... You 
of time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe redo book two with Belle Phoebe and you yeah. Book two might be a good one to redo. Book one has often been edited for children or something or students or. It's, 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 yeah, <laughs> it's like taking two pages of the Bible and saying this is representative of the whole thing. Yes. it's just it's absurd. I know. Mm. I know. It certainly is. So he then encountered a confused rout by the river, at Huilom was height the ancient Albus, where with courage stout he them defeated in victorious fight. Interesting. And chased so fiercely after fearful flight, that forced their chieftain for his safety's sake, their chieftain Humber name it was a right. Yeah, and this is all just invention, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, the Humber is a river in Yorkshire. Mm-hmm. I am aware. My grandfather grew up on it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. We're from York. <laughs> there you are. You know, there's a town down the river from Hull called Ghoul. It's also a port. But the Russians can't tell them apart because there's no H in Russian, so they put a G instead. Ghoul and Ghoul. And so they, they're both called Ghoul in Russian. Hilarious. Ghoul <laughs> <laughs> one, Ghoul two. <laughs> Useless fact for today. Mm. So, yeah, all this stuff about Humber is... Kind of famously banal in English. I, by the Humber's tide, would complain to its coy mistress. Oh, OK, right, that's yes. what... Yeah, right, 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 yes, right, right. Bow yes. by the Indian Ganges side, should rubies find, I, by the tide of Humber, would complain. So the Ganges, exotic. And then the Humber, grey, dull grey. Brown, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the king returned proud of victory, and insolent walks through unwanted ease, that shortly he forgot the jeopardy which in his land he slightly did appease, and fell to vain voluptuous disease. He loved fair lady, Emerald, lewdly loved, whose wanton pleasures him too much did please, as an old story. But quite his heart from Gwendolen removed, from Gwendolen his wife, though always faithful proved. <laughs> Another faithful wife. Another faithful wife. <laughs> Penelope, <Yes>. Gwendolen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's the same old story. So, you know, there's a sense in which we have the same old story. We've got this cycle. Mm. People, they have great victories, they, they govern in peace, but they become complacent, they start dallying, they start putting it about, mm-hmm. if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> the result is a catastrophe follows. And so there's no real sense of progression here. Mm. It's not a Whig version of history at all, as you might think it ought to be if you're thinking... Because the Whig version of history is just recognising the cycles. Well, it is. But, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but these are the cycles of a vehicle stuck in the mud. Yeah. And around around and going nowhere. That's where human civilization. <laughs> oh, that's right. But but Whiggish history sees them as mm. a car that's moving forward, you know, towards peace and progress and plenty. Mm. And a chicken in every pot. I now wonder as well if we've had so many so-called utopian stories that people have sort of given up on the idea. We know that there's no brave new world. Like, yeah, you know. We s- well, I suppose so. But the whole idea of utopia is a very modern one, isn't it? Because, well, you know, for, for Christians, you've got paradise, which is in the past. You've got heaven, which salvation. is in your personal future. But, well, there is a sort of idea that that you know, if you prosecuted enough, that there's a thousand-year reign of Christ upon earth between. That's nice. Yeah, between the defeat of Satan and. Maybe that's what Scomo was getting up to. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. Well, these people, they live in this horrible sort of death fantasy world, right? 
everyone will be seized by you know death but they will be raptured up to heaven and drink the Kool-Aid and mm. it's a sinister thing so she's not pleased <laughs> the noble daughter of Corinne's would not endure to be so vile disdain but gathering force and courage valorous encountered him in battle well ordained by which him vanquished she to fly constrained in which him vanquished she yes her vanquished past participle covering him but she so fast pursued that him she took and threw in bands where he till death remained also his fair lemon lying through flying through a brook she overhent not moved with her piteous look so wrong woman to piss off really mm. wasn't she yes mm. bad move mm. both to herself that's a, um, interestingly a story isn't it that recurs again and again throughout this chronicle yes of women who are pushed too far yes. <laughs> and then made to look like villains well well who, yeah who react the point is the point is who who the churlish reader will react to and say mm. you know that's not right she should accept it gratefully. But the poem, you see, the poem, the poem says to her, you know, it says, "You go, girl." <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> go, boss. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you shouldn't think, well, he's kind of deserved it, really. What are we? Eighteen. Eighteen. Threw in band. Probably. Oh, we should probably stop. <laughs> yeah, and, and return to this. Um, as for throwing him in bombs, you might have liked it, you know. Mm, oh, well, what, as we will see later. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Chacun a son goût. <laughs> How now, brown cow? <laughs> and we're back. We're back. Under a new monarch. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yes, God save the king. Mm. Somebody better. <laughs> Didn't work for the queen. No. So, we are at... The end of stanza 18. The end of stanza 18. Because we talked about the humber... Oh, yes. That's right. Also, there been flying through a brook. She overhent, not moved with her piteous look. That's right. So this is the fair Sabrina, who, of course, is celebrated by Milton. Mm-hmm. In Kermis. Yes. <laughs> um, Do you think Milton took the idea of her chastity from this Sabrina or just from Spencer broadly and other kind of cultural influences? I'm not sure, to be honest. Mm. I'd suspect Spencer, because it sounds less like history than a myth, doesn't it? Yeah. And then for her son, which she to Locrine bore, Madame was young, unmeet the rule to sway. There are lots of quite sort of powerful women in this uh, history. We call it the Book of Kings, but... It's, it's really a... the strong women standing slightly behind the kings and being ignored by history. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. During which time her power she did display through all this realm the glory of her sex and first taught men a woman to obey. Mm. Which, of course, was a hot topic even towards the end of Elizabeth's reign, although less of a pressing hot topic than it had been slightly uh, earlier. At the start of her reign? <laughs> at the start of her reign. Well, particularly when it was Elizabeth in England and Mary in Scotland. Right. And that's, of course, the origin of... The Monstrous Regiment of Women by John Knox. The first blast of the trumpet against the Monstrous Regiment of Women. Hmm. Monstrous meaning, of course, unnatural, like having six fingers, and regiment meaning rule. So The unnatural rule of women. Yes. So unnatural as to herald the last days, you know, the first blast of the trumpet. Hmm. 
Turned out all right, though, didn't it? Turned out all right. <laughs> yes, to, to people's surprise. And, mm. of course, had all sorts of interesting consequences in the early 17th century. Did anyone notice that it turned out all right, actually? Oh, I think so. All right. I think they did. <laughs> yes. I mean, a lot of the praise of the monarch is conventional, isn't it? Mm. You know, you, you kind of have to. It's like the notion you know, that all princesses are beautiful and so on. But people did understand that she was a, an entirely competent ruler. And, mm. and, of course, highly scholarly. And she spoke several languages. Mm. And uh, basically avoided or postponed civil war in England, which would have broken out with a, a less competent person in charge of Ooh, Charles the Second. <laughs> Charles the First, I'm sorry, Charles the First. <laughs> yes, headless Charles the First. Headless Charles the First, that's right. But I think we said at the beginning of this that we wouldn't be spending time on every single detail. It's it's curiously unsatisfactory. I mean, what it is is a compressed history that is in a sense intended to remind you of stuff. But if you don't know what it's reminding you of, the narratives are too compressed to make sense as narratives. So you have to know it already. Yes. It's a very strange... Well, it's, it's an illusion, but... Yeah, it's an illusion. A string of illusions, and you have to know the full string. Exactly. And not enough clues to figure it out if you don't know them. No. Okay. And, of course, the thing is, it's alluding to pseudo-history, in any case. And establishing Invented. the Tudors as the, as the one true line. Yeah, that's um, the thing that runs through it. So, in a sense... <coughs> he has to deal with them all because it's, you know, showing... As we were saying before, you've got on the one hand the appearance of history being one damn thing after another, mm. but underneath it all is the golden thread mm. of providential um, government, if you like. What's the once and future? Uh, Rex, Rex quondam, quondam it futurus. I was close. <laughs> <laughs> yes, the once, once and future king. Mm. So it was Arthur... Um, and then it will, yeah, and it will be article Arthur, yeah. That's right, yeah. Cool. And of course, this was a myth that the Tudors absolutely played on. So, for example, I mean, because you know, um, you take Henry Richmond, her grandfather, Henry the Seventh, who is he's, he's nobody basically. He's the son of a Welsh squire called Owen Tudor or Tudor. Ooh. So, <laughs> so you've got a serious problem of um, legitimacy because. Richard III was absolutely, he was the last Plantagenet standing. Um, so what do you do? Well, double-pronged strategy, you vilify Richard III, make him into a sort of horned beast. Mm-hmm. Check. Uh, ch- <laughs> <laughs> Child killer. Um, you know, instead of a hunchback, he had a sort of barely noticeable scoliosis mm. of the spine. And secondly, you claim to be Arthur returned to save England. It's the exact same strategy they use now. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Did you see Arthur being quoted? Is it Tim Scott? Um, Dandrew's opposition leader. He wrote that. Oh, oh, no, no, you're thinking. What was it? Uh, Matthew Guy. Uh, yes, sorry, yes. Matthew Guy. He he listed the great forebears, including King Arthur. I thought you'd have a chuckle at that. Yeah, that was wonderful. <laughs> so apparently it's going to be expunged from Hansard. Is it? Mm. Don't know why. I think if I were Dan Andrews, I would I hang on to that. I'd keep that. As we probably know, um, Henry VII named his first son Arthur in the hope that King Arthur would succeed in establishing the Tudor line. But 
of course he turned up his toes a bit too soon. Like soon, soon, soon? Well, no, I mean, he married... Oh, OK. No, he married, what's her name, Catherine of Aragon. Oh, of course. OK. Um, there's some dispute about whether the marriage was consummated. Because, of course, in terms of canon law, that makes a difference about whether or not <sighs> Henry could take her over, if you like, as a sort of parcel-parcel. Um, oh. Mm. Also, there was, it, it was wonderful food for debate because... Leviticus says, you know, if your brother dies, take his wife unto you. And Deuteronomy says, if your brother dies, don't touch his wife with a ten-foot badge pole. So <laughs> just you, depends which bit of the Bible you, you're following that you, day. You pays your money and you takes your choice. Okay, right. Yeah. But that, that's why, for example, Hamlet is is interestingly timely because you know, uh. <laughs> Claudius marrying his wife's his brother's uh, wife, his murdered brother's wife. Hmm. Mm. The, that he murdered. That he murdered. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. On purpose. <laughs> <laughs> mm. He has lots of sons. I mean, you know, the second Brutus, both second both in name, son of the 23, and he can semblance of his puissance great, right well recured, and did away that blame with recompense of everlasting fame. He with his victor sword first opened the bowels of wide France, a forlorn dame, and taught her first how to be conquered. Is that a C-section? Did he just do a C-section on France? Uh, well, that's, oh, I see. Um, y- yes, I, I think they probably distinguish between the bowels and the womb. Sure, OK. Uh, although it can be a bit kind of ropey, that to me. No, I mean, the point is, this is a, a kind of little sign, isn't it, that we're meant to praise bloodshed and conquest and so on. Mm. But in fact, the, the, the language there is strongly disapproving, isn't it? You know, first rule of courtesy is you don't go around ripping out the bowels of women. Or, uh, or neighbouring countries. Unless they're really annoying. Mm, and even then, you ask <laughs> even politely even, first. Yes, exactly. <laughs> consent. Consent, consent always, yes. Um, That's right. <laughs> and Brute... Or just, just brute. Brute. Brute, sort of for brutus. So, yes. Um, Which means stupid. Didn't course. you say last time, was it France have their own version of this myth? Yes, they had Francus. Francus, okay, and we have Brutus. Yeah, we have and this Brutus. is him. Okay. And you can see, this is really what you call a back formation, isn't it? You know, you take the name of the place and you find her. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this is <coughs> establishing. Uh, Brutus is establishing their uh, legitimacy. Establishing legitimacy of the English monarchy by deriving it from the Trojan, mm-hmm. which is the source of all legitimacy. Nobody knows... I mean, there were Trojans, mm-hmm. but nobody actually could trace who exactly the Trojans were. Or, or exactly where. They think they know, right? Yeah, they blasted through... Yes, there's a, there's a nine-layered... Um, city in the right sort of place. Right sort of place. There's cities everywhere. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Hmm. Yeah. But there was a strong desire to see, you know, these classical places and people. The famous remark of um, Schliemann, I have looked upon the face of Agamemnon. Did you though? Well, well, he found a gold gold mask in... um, A toomey thing? A toomey thing. (laughs) (laughs) But in the right place. Okay. Um... But, uh, you know. So even now we really don't know much about the Trojans? No, so they're, they're fiction as far as we know. Really? But they may have some origin in fact. Um, 
it's quite likely they do, I suppose. Yeah. But over several thousand years of mythologization. It's hard to know which strand is right mm. and how much, yeah. Mm. But see, in a sense, if you're looking for authenticity, paradoxically, a myth is better. Oh, okay. Because, well... Because you can't prove it wrong. No, exactly. Yeah. Plus, your mythical hero can be as heroic as you like. Mm. You can leap tall buildings into a single bound. Your actual historical hero may have feet of clay. Yeah, because they are human. <laughs> they are human. That's yeah. right. That's interesting because a lot of what we, you know, think about Jesus as probably being the, the big hero that was probably real, but so much of what we know about him is mythologised. Yeah. We don't have his diary. We don't. <laughs> what you have to do is distinguish between intentional objects, as philosophers call them. Okay. Because, you know, people say, did Jesus really exist? And that's kind of like a meaningless question unless you clarify it. Mm -hmm. Because, doubtless, you could find a carpenter called... Jesus. Yeah, well, <laughs> <laughs> that's right, yes. Um, which is basically Joshua. Um, just find a Josh. Just find a Josh. <laughs> Josh, son of... Joseph. Joseph, thank you. Bar Joseph, yes. Joshua Bar Joseph in the right sort of place at the right sort of time and you're hoe and hose but <laughs> you aren't really because when people say did Jesus exist they actually mean an intentional object is uh, our idea of a figure and you can have an intentional object of a fictional character or a mythological character so we should be asking did Jesus Christ as we understand him now exist back then yes and the answer exactly. is probably flippin' not a, a chap who walked on water and churned water into wine and so on and uh, <laughs> but was there a pretty good politician who gave rousing rhetorical speeches and... Yeah, exactly. Maybe. <laughs> Went up to a mountain with some stones. Which the Romans crucified because he was a bit of a political nuisance. And getting a bit too big for his britches. And then Possibly. There he became an accidental martyr. Yeah. Yeah. And things got a bit out of hand. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But even then, you, even with the Gospels, you have, you've got no certainty because there's so much contradiction within them, like um, the fact that um, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, mm -hmm. Mark and Luke... And John? Oh, just four? Well, no, Matthew, Mark and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels. What, what's John? Well, he's the non-Synoptic Gospel, okay. I suppose. Sure. <laughs> he, he's much harder to, to push into that shoebox. Okay. Because he's got all sorts of wild stuff in there. Okay. Um, the Synoptic Gospels say that Christ was crucified on the Friday before the Passover. John says he was crucified on the Friday after the Passover. So using a syncretistic view, <laughs> we outcast John. <laughs> I see. Well, that's right. okay. well, except you can't, because he's gospel and therefore he's the word of God. So you're faced with a kind of intractable problem. There are so many. Where did the Holy Family go after, after the birth of Jesus? Did they A, go, 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 go to Jerusalem? Did they B, fly to Egypt? Are both answers correct according to the Gospels? Yep, they're both in there. <laughs> okay. The, the wise men are in one Gospel, the shepherds are in another Gospel, and we always conflate them, we bang them all together, you know. We all know the nativity story. Yeah, but... exactly, but it's a, it's a conflation of... All this is taking us a long way from the book of... I know, uh, sorry. <laughs> But, but that idea of the intentional object is important, I think. Because mm -hmm. that's myth, what they're doing with Arthur, yes. Yeah, and myth gives... Well, I mean, but again, you see, how many intentional objects we could put, label Arthur on are there? Mm. You think of, you know, Spencer's Arthur here, you think of Tennyson, you think of 
Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Blackadder. Blackadder. <laughs> there are dozens and dozens and dozens. And, you know, the whole, that whole medieval French um, storytelling about Arthur. Because it's Lamont de Arthur, isn't it? So, yes. And that's French. Yeah, Arthur's death. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it's a French version of an English story. Well... Not not so much English, of course. There it is, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of what I meant, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's Celtic. Right. So, of course, in a sense, if Arthur had existed, he would have been resisting the English. Another f- flaw <laughs> well, <laughs> in the mythology. Yeah, well, that's right, that's right. And, you know, well, so much has been written about this, but he could have been, for example, a Roman centurion or, you know, high-up soldier called Arturius who organised a sort of resistance against... stayed stayed in in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. The is so tricky, isn't it? And um, fought a kind of resistance, guerrilla warfare against the English. The English. In the 6th century. 6th... OK. <laughs> wow. Hmm. Um, that's one possibility. Another intentional We really don't object. know anything, do we? Well, no, we don't. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as our friend is always telling us, we don't know much about early Britain because there's not a lot written. There's the Venerable Bede. There is, and he's over credited, of course, to some extent. Because mm. if there's only one. Well, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And you, know, you stick venerate, venerable in front of his name, then of course you're going to believe him. <laughs> The venerable ass. He, would, he wouldn't tell fibs. <laughs> In fact, the next stanza kind of opens up this problem. Let Scaldi's tell and then, then let Hania and let the Marsh of Essen Bruges tell what colour were the waters that same day. And all the more twixt Elvish and Mandel. To the, uh, the simple-minded reader that says, all these people agree. <laughs> <laughs> To anyone who's thoughtful, it suggests oh, all these sources, you know, it's problematic. Mm. <laughs> Bible apologists often argue that, you know, for much of the Synoptic Gospels, they agree. But the trouble is, they agree too much because they are verbatim reproductions. That's right, because they weren't sitting around in a circle. No. They were writing after they had read each other's, yeah? Well, there's a, there's a string. It's, yeah, yeah, that's in right. In relation to each other. In relation to each other, that's right. So they each claim to be kind of eyewitnesses of these things, and yet they're reproducing somebody else's words. And note, of course, that these these gospel writers, they're Jews from the Middle East whose, whose native language would have been Aramaic, mm. and yet they're writing flawlessly grammatical Greek. Hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> And one's, apart from the big differences, which I, you know, one's flawlessly grammatical Greek is identical to another's flawlessly grammatical Greek, which just never happens if you're paraphrasing, retelling a story. It never comes out in the same words. You know, if you were a policeman and you had three accounts of of the robbery and they were identical, you would suspect collusion. Mm. Collusion is the only thing that can really explain that. And they're writing long after Jesus is dead, aren't they? Yeah. Decades, decades after. So it's unlikely they were even there. It might have just been someone oh, else. Impossible, really. Putting together notes, maybe from those people yeah. in a circle together. <laughs> Except we, we don't know who wrote the, any of the Gospels. 
are the church aware? <laughs> like, should we tell them? <laughs> write a letter to the Pope. Did you know? <laughs> it's purely convention, this Matthew, Mark, Luke and John stuff. Because, you know, none of them ever says, I, Mark, you know, saw this with my own eyes. 10th of December. <laughs> <laughs> Get it witnessed. And, and there's the synoptic and then the apocryphal the apoc- are the ones that were written but left out. There's the apocryphal gospel of St. Thomas, of course, mm. which, which gives you Jesus as a, as a child. And he's he's the one putting his teachers in ovens and throwing tantrums and yeah so yes he kills a, a, a playmate because you know as boys will boys will be boys mm. <laughs> he does bring him back to life though so. that's nice yeah <laughs> probably his mother complained you know mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay mm. yeah I don't really know what to do with this I mean, <laughs> how much to go through yeah yeah there are bits bits I suppose which. Well, what we do have, line 27 onward, is the story of King Lear. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, it's straight. It's all out of um, Geoffrey of Monmouth. Yes. <laughs> and, and sometimes he plays about with Geoffrey and sometimes he doesn't. Mm-hmm. But the Lear one is interesting. Um, there was a play called King Lear, uh, spelled L-E-I-R. Oh, OK, I was going to say, yeah, we know. <laughs> you know that. <laughs> <laughs> And in fact, that is probably what mainly Shakespeare used. Uh, and that's not Monmouth, that's someone else? Oh, oh, no, the story is from Monmouth. Okay, but and then the play? The play of King Lear, L-E-I-R, mm-hmm. is based on Monmouth, yeah, definitely. Okay. But in fact, you look at this, we, the story, you know, mainly follows, or rather Shakespeare mainly follows the story here. They're wedded to different people, like line 29, standard 29, so wedded the one to Maglin, King of Scots, and the other to the King of... Cambria, um, and twixt them shared his realm by equal lots. But without dower, the wise Cordelia was sent to Agonip of Celtica, the aged sire, the season of his crown, a private life led in Albania. <laughs> Which, of course, is not Albania in our no, sense. It's Alba, England. Yes, yeah. exactly. Because in King Lear, basically, Regan, I think, gets, this, gets Scotland and the north, and, and Goneril gets the west. And Cordelia was to have the best part, which is the home counties, the Midlands, the most fruitful, fertile part of England. Mm. And then that's split up between the other two. So his daughters can despise his drooping day and weary wax of his continual stay. So, but the, well, the real ending is, the, the, the thing is that Cordelia comes to rescue her, and after all an army strong she leaved to war on those, meaning levied, I suppose, which had him of his realm bereaved. So she restores him to his crown, which he died, um, and then he bequeathed it to her. So she peaceably, she's king of, she's king, she's queen, she's monarch of Britain. Gender neutral monarch. (laughs) Yes, exactly. For a long time, and all men's hearts in due obedience held. And then her nieces and nephews, waxen strong through proud ambition against her rebelled. Then they keep her in prison, till weary of that wretched life herself, she hung... So instead of <coughs> being hanged, as in, as in Shakespeare, mm. she lives way beyond that point and then hangs herself, interestingly. Oh, I thought it was just a euphemism for death. But no, it does say to weary of that wretched life. Oh, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, Dr. Johnson says, you know, against the faith of all the chronicles, Shakespeare has, has her murdered 
by chance, you know. Five more minutes and they'd have turned up and I killed a slave that was hanging these, says King Lear. And it's very interesting because it's Shakespeare experimenting. I, this is really way off topic, isn't it? But Shakespeare experimenting with... We'll call this one the off-topic episode. <laughs> with genre, you know, because the idea is that, well, the fundamental notion, the neoclassical notion of poetic justice, that you, 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 you get what you deserve at the end of the play, you know, the, the bad oh, end... Remember the famous phrase of um, of uh, Miss Prism in the importance of being earnest. Mm. She, the, the importance of being earnest. Mm. Oscar Wilde. Yes, yes, yes. I'm trying to remember. Well, she <laughs> she she's written a three volume novel which she loses in Waterloo Station or somewhere, I think. And, and she explains that uh, the good end happily and the bad end unhappily. That is what fiction means. And that's exactly the point, of course. That's what fiction means. Mm. So what Shakespeare gives us there is life. Or rather, he shows us a world in which God is not providentially, overall, remedying injustices and so on. Yes. But just shit happens, you know? You get there five minutes too late and your daughter is dead. Mm. It is an interesting experiment with genre. Yeah, Yeah. that's right. But also with um, worldview, because it does suggest that Shakespeare was indeed, as I maintain, an atheist. You've, you've convinced me of that, yes. The other person who does this, of course, is Hardy, who's also very much an atheist. Thomas. Thomas Hardy. Yeah. So in, in um, <coughs> Tess of the D'Urbervilles, there's the famous episode where Tess pushes a letter under the door for Angel Clare to read. But unfortunately, as is perfectly plausible, she pushes it under the mat on the other side. So it's never read, it's never seen, it's invisible. And, you know, contemporary critics complained that this was, I don't know, that that it was illegitimate because it didn't arise necessarily out of the preceding action, like a, like a you know, a play by Aeschylus or something. But that's exactly the point. Yeah. This is what life it's is like. It's the rise of fiction, which is realism, yes. which is lifelike, yeah. Exactly. But this is exactly how, how life is, you know, you, you just these tiny little mistakes and mm. they can have huge consequences. So, that was a that was a digression. Mm, interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> and again, and, and King Lear, you know, it's it's all about um, the legitimacy authority passing on. Yeah. The, how inheritance works, all of that. So that makes sense that that story he's using that story That's right. here. Yep. That's right. That's right. Also, because it's just it's in there. I mean, in a sense, he's got a kind of intractable source material, <laughs> which is. Turns Monmouth into poetry. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. I'm, I have to say, I don't think it's entirely successful in terms of the general reader. No. Making sense of all this. At least we can understand why he's doing it. Yeah, you're right. There might have been better ways to get this message across to a general reader. Yes. Rather than. <laughs> but also, he's showing off and he's having a good time. He's having a good time. A lot of indigestible detail, I assume. Mm. Um, all these names. Yes, he is showing off, isn't he? <laughs> Again, a slightly interesting part. <laughs> Stanza 46. He had two sons whose eldest, called Lud, left of his life most famous memory and endless monuments of his great good. The ruined walls he did re-edify of Troy Novant. <laughs> and that, of course, is London. So, Lud. Lud, London. London, that's what... Troy Novant, Troy. Yes, that's right. New Troy. New Troy. New Troy. That's right. And, of course, there's a Ludgate to this day in in London. London Gate. 
Yes, that's what I mean. And it's London because Londinium. Well, nobody knows. Nobody um, knows. Well, Londinium is what the Romans, Romans called it, and it was it was a kind of logical place to build because it's the kind of it's the most convenient river crossing that's also closest to the sea while still being it's somewhat safe protected. Inland, it's a good spot. It's a, it's a good spot. Yeah. It's a logical spot to build. <laughs> so they built it in sixty-five AD. And then a couple of years later, Bodicea burnt it down, or Boudica, mm. as we have to call her. And we've got Caesar entering the story, <laughs> sort of. And again, Julius Caesar, of course, never made it to England. To England. Mm. I mean, he attempted an invasion, but it was sort of put back. Um, so, of course, it wasn't until about 100 years later, under Claudius, that Britain was invaded. Oh, wow. Mm. You think of the Roman Empire and you forget how long <laughs> mm. it was in charge for. Mm. Yeah. That's right. I mean, that's exactly why it was seen as having this indisputable authority. So even when the barbarian kings came over and took over parts of Italy, they still thought of themselves as Roman, you know, still using Roman law. They would have senates and things, and, because it was kind of the only game in town. You couldn't imagine a world without Rome in some form. Wow. Mm. It's like, I guess, if we were invaded, I don't know, by New Zealand, it would still be a capitalist. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the structures of society would largely remain. It wouldn't be. Mm. Mm. That's right. And, of course, Rome persisted in the East until 1453. So the last Roman emperor died in... Well, That's late. It's late, isn't it? <laughs> Jesus. I know. Who was the last Roman emperor? Oh, you've got me there. Um, <laughs> sorry. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> I can tell you the last Western Roman emperor. Okay. His name was Romulus Augustulus, which is... The first... Ra- rather appropriate. Yeah. Romulus, because... Rome. Rome. And then yeah. Augustus, the first, the first emperor. emperor. But yeah. Augustulus means little Augustus. So it's, it's kind of like a name that's fashioned, you know. Yeah, that's cute. <laughs> but I can't remember the name of the last actual Roman emperor. We'll let you off this time. Okay. <laughs> Here we are. They, I was just saying this, like stanza 51, good Claudius, the next emperor, an army brought him with his back, within battle fought, which of course isn't actually accurate about being the next emperor, but never mind. Oh, now here's an important part. <laughs> stanza 53. Um, oh, yes. He died and him succeeded Marius, who joined his days in great tranquility, then Coil, and after him, good Lucius, the first received Christianity, that first the sacred pledge of Christian Christ's evangelium, evangelium being, being the good news. Mm-hmm. Yet true it is that long before that day, here there came Joseph of Arimathy, Ar- you have to say. Ooh. I know, I know. Um, who brought with him the Holy Grail, they say. <laughs> now, isn't that wonderful? <laughs> they say. <laughs> you know, if you want to believe this guff, he's saying. Uh, you, but... Yeah, he's legitimising Elizabeth, but at the same time pointing out that this is all yeah. flapdoodle, hogwash. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And this is actually very interesting because the whole thrust of Book One, I mean, one of the major thrusts of Book One, is about the English church and about the church under Elizabeth being a rediscovery of the ancient English church that was corrupted by falling into Catholicism by the Richard Pope. So and, and, and that depends upon the myth that Joseph of Arimathea came to England... With a cup. With the cup, that, the famous cup. 
Yes, that's right. With some blood. It, it, it didn't even have anything in it. Well, I know it... Well... But when he brought it, you know... Yeah, it was just a... It was a ritual object. Yeah. As museum curators like to call these things. When they don't know what something is and they've dug it up, they call it a ritual object. <laughs> Unnamed vase. <laughs> okay. And did those feet in ancient time walk upon England's mountains green? And was the holy lamb of God on England's pleasant Blake. pastures seen? Yes. He's talking about that yeah. Um It's the one they turned into a song. They, they did, yes. <laughs> Jerusalem. Thank you! <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Music by William, William Parr? No. <laughs> That's right. Mm. It's funny. It's, it's always sung solemnly. It's a kind of establishment thing. It's such a happy... I don't, it's a nice... It's a great tune, but also it's often sung as ceremonial. And it was feet in ancient times. Um, but of course it's a rather subversive poem, as you'd expect yeah. from Blake. <laughs> yes. People just don't... If it's, if it's a ritual thing, they don't pay attention to the words. It's, did you ever hear um, the famous Monty Python song in this man is kind of ritual establishment, you know? Let's all worship the Queen kind of song. The words are, it starts, I've got a ferret sticking up my nose. But The way they sing it? The way they sing it, it sounds... You don't notice. Oh, that's right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, nice. (laughs) The Holy Grail, they say, and preach the truth, but since it greatly did decay. And you can think of that as book one of this poem in a nutshell. (laughs) And also the truth. Well, the, the truth yeah. decays. We don't. What is truth? Is no such. Exactly, suggesting Pilate and would not stay for an answer. Exactly. Um, I've got written here Acts of the Apostles. What's that? <laughs> well, well it's, it's a book of the New Testament. Oh, okay, right. I wonder why. Is it? What? Yeah, we must have talked about it last time, and I've made a note. Um, well, I don't think the Act of the Apostles includes Joseph Arabic. Yeah, that's why I... <laughs> um, pledge. No. Because yeah. really, the Acts of the Apostles is essentially the Acts of Paul, isn't it? You know, he's, the, he's, he's the big banana. He is the big banana. <laughs> exactly. The cat's so. pyjamas. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, oh, and here we have Stout Bundaka. It sounds unfortunate, doesn't it? It's cooking shortly without issue died. Where of great trouble in the kingdom grew that did herself in sundry parts divide, and with her power her own self overthrew, whilst Romans daily did the weak subdue, which seeing stout Bunduka up arose, and taking arms the Britons to her drew, with whom she marched straight against her foes, them unwares beside the seven did enclose. Again, not exactly. It's kind of pseudo history, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> what she did was she rose up and it wasn't really an army, it was just kind of a rabble, which is why when it finally faced the Romans, even though there, there were hundreds and thousands of Britons and just a, you know, a couple of legions of Romans, it was completely... Chaos. Yeah, chaos. She, and she departed the battlefield and then killed herself, probably. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's exactly, it's exactly the way that the British Empire conquered the Third World, you know. Yeah, they just it's turned up organised. Drill. Yeah. You turn a soldier into an automaton. Yeah. Because and they don't question commands, you yeah. just follow the drill. Yeah, That's exactly right. Whereas 
rational human beings who have a you know, reasonable fear for their own safety. Will run. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. And if you're incredibly organised and outfitted and you have flags and guns. Yes. That's right. Um, the musical song about, I think it was about one of the uh, Zulu wars. Part of the refrain goes, we must win for we have got the Gatling gun and they have not. Yeah, fair enough. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> there she with them a cruel battle tried, not with so good success as she deserved. By reason the captains on her side, corrupted by Paulinus from her swerved. I don't, I don't know where that's coming from. <laughs> Yet such as were through former flight preserved, gathering in her host she did renew, and with fresh courage on the vict- victor served. But being all defeated, save a few, rather than fly or be captived herself, she slew. So it's curiously ambivalent about Bodicea, as we used to call her, mm-hmm. isn't it? Um, particularly when she's so obviously an Elizabeth avatar. As most of the women are in some way or another, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Oh, famous monument of women's praise, matchable either to Semiramis. Now, do we know who Semiramis was? No. Well... It's quite interesting. She was a kind of warrior queen from... Another one. Another one, yes. And, of course, she's had a bad press, you'd be surprised to learn, Mm. from the... yes, From men? Yes, (laughs) that's right. That's right. But, um, and, of course, she was seen not only as unruly, but also as, you know, lustful and so on. All of which is just stories, really. So it's actually quite interesting, isn't it? Because he can use his examples, whereby, again, you've got a double reading. You've got a conventional reading that says, oh, yes, that's a mirrorless woman. Oh, goodness me, what she got up to? Um, but then you've also got a more critical reading that thinks, you know, hmm. Well, of course, they would say that, wouldn't they? <laughs> I mean, a lot of this comes from the Romans, and the Romans wrote the history because they had written language. And control, and power, and paper. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting when you've got more than one view. I mean, Horace, for example, writes a, quite a long poem about Cleopatra once she's been defeated. But Horace is very misogynistic. Well... No, juvenile. Juvenile. Oh, juvenile. Yeah. Yes, juvenile's hair-raisingly misogynistic. Okay, Horace is just, you know, by the by. It's quite interesting, because you can see he's torn between an admiration for Ah, uh, there it is. And huge worry that a woman should be doing all this, you know. And so he ends up praising her as really a, a pretty good bloke, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's what men often end up I, doing, though. Oh, she's one right. of the boys, that's you know. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. She's a good bloke. And that explains her success in battle and things like that, you know. <laughs> her learning and all that. <laughs> so I think the tone of this is quite interesting. Um, praising praising her in terms of these women who have got this bad press but from you know the entire I mean who's the first female historian I can't even think who that would be it can't be until and there probably was one earlier but we don't have any of her work yeah Christine de Pizan sort of writes a bit about her that's what Google says yeah look her up Princess Anne Comnena Oh, ten oh three to eleven. The Elixir. Yes, that's kind of well. It's, it's, it's an epic poem. Me. <laughs> <laughs> is it about Alexandra? Uh, uh, Elixir. No, uh, no Elixir is about a chap. Never mind. Mm. But 
Byzantine princess. That's what, yeah. that's what she was. Cool. Catherine McCauley. Oh, no, she's right. Mm. Yeah, everyone is saying Mary Ritter Beard. <laughs> mm. It's um, The Wife of the Bath's Tale is quite fun because, you know, The Wife of the Bath is a fairly dominant, assertive character. Mm. And um, she, she basically, she's so fed up with her fifth husband, I think it is, <laughs> who's a scholar... Bake him into a pie. <laughs> he's constantly, constantly saying, you know, and so and so saith this about women, and such and such saith that about women. And, you know, it's never good. So she rips up his book and she points out that all these books are written by men. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she also was switched on. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's funny. We just we, we had we're an interesting bit. Or <laughs> two, I. Pipsley Orta Tomiris. Um, her host, 200,000 numbered is, who, whilst good fortune favoured her, might triumphant oft against her enemies, and yet, though overcome in hapless fight, she triumphed, she triumphed on death in enemies' despite. So, the ambivalence is only apparent. It's in a sense. I Pipsley, of course, was the queen who whose female subjects killed their husbands. And this somehow saved her father. I'm not a bit hazy on the details there, but... Okay. Yeah. But again, is this unruly women, you know... Or is it women taking back some sort of agency... Exactly. ...and control? Yeah. Even even now when we do revisionist readings and we say, oh, women have been subjects throughout history and poor women... Like, yes, yes, absolutely. But there have been... It's not like we were just lying dormant. No. Well, there was a lot of fighting back. That's right. Um, yeah. That's, that's exactly right. When Rex Fulgent, having gathered, fought with Severus and him overthrew, even the chase was slain of them that fled, so made them victors whom he did subdue. Then Gan... Caravius tyrannise anew, and against the Romans bent their proper power. But him Electus tradition treacherously slew, and took on him the robe of emperor. This is all nonsense. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> I'm going to turn that into a soundbite. It's not nonsense. <laughs> now, first the same enjoyed, but short, but short happy hour. Could be the first use of happy hour, though. <laughs> um... Yes, more nonsense. On we are. <laughs> oh. Then we're going to mention Constantine. The first Christian Roman emperor. But not really. Because uh, it was myth. The donation of Constantine was... The donation of Constantine was myth. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. But the fact that he was um, the first Christian emperor is true. But on his deathbed. Yeah, well, he hedged his bets. <laughs> You know, maybe Zeus, maybe Christ. So he did his whole life with Zeus and the last minute was like... Well, you've heard of the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. This was when he defeated his great rival for empire. Okay. Now, the night before the battle, Mm. he dreamt Mm. of a a cross in the sky and a sign that said, In hoc signo vinces. In this sign you shall conquer. So he had his troops wear crosses and they won the battle so. funny if they'd lost <laughs> yes um. <laughs> wouldn't it how different history would be <laughs> but but actually <laughs> well I know yeah oh absolutely absolutely because Christianity succeeded because it had the backing of the Roman Empire which was the only game in town yeah and if they'd been 
still pagans. Yeah, that's right. Would we all be still worshipping Zeus? We would. Well. Or some other idiot. Um. (laughs) That's right. Mm. That's right. So, Constantine, to afterwards Emperor of Rome, to which was absent he is minded, set Octavius here leapt into his room, and it usurped by unrighteous doom. But his title justified by might slaying Traherne, and having overcome the Roman legion in dreadful fight, so settled his kingdom and confirmed his right. This must be the least read or least enjoyed part of the whole fairy tale. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it's just... I mean, the history is interesting, but... Well, sort of, but it's... Uh, but well, it's not real history. <laughs> it, it, yeah, exactly. It's not real history. It's desperately sketchy. Mm. The narratives are miniaturised. Mm. That kind of makes them unsatisfying in the way that, you know, a fairy tale is unsatisfying because you want to know, you know... It, it's too simplified. Yes. Yeah. And, but I think... Perhaps that's his point, isn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose He's so. He's pointing out that it's too simplified. Yeah. You really do have to be a subversive reader here. You have to, yes. And as we've learned, people struggle with that. That's right, that's right. Well, the interesting thing is, if, if when, when, when a narrative is compressed so far, you cease to ask narrative questions of it. Now, this is exactly the, I don't know if you'll call it a problem, but it's, it's what faces Milton in Paradise Lost, because he takes a narrative that fits into two paragraphs of the Genesis, and he expands it into something the size of a novella. <laughs> so you don't ask why does Eve take the fruit in Genesis because she does. <laughs> just, just like you don't ask why the why the ugly sisters mean to Cinderella. Well, that's just their job, you know. That is their job. <laughs> you don't, yeah, it's you, a fable. It's a fable. But when you stretch it out, you start asking these questions. Yeah. Why the hell does Eve do this crazy thing? Why does Adam answers. follow her? Yeah. Um, and Milton has to find answers to those questions. Mm. It's funny how those answers have uh, more cultural weight nowadays, often mm. in the Bible, because people know stuff from Paradise Lost, even if they don't know where they know it from. Yes, but it's true. only in Paradise Lost, but, or or the cultural kind of wake that it leaves. That's right. Yeah, it's interesting. It is interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I was just taken by the by the term "stags of '65," who having often battle vanquished that. Those spoilful pits and swarming Easterlings. I like Easterlings. Easterlings. <laughs> um, probably Vikings. Yes. Because they come from the East. And that was a bit of a surprise for everyone. Yes. It's a, it's a, <laughs> a bit of a shock. Bit of a shock. Yes. <laughs> you imagine sort of average Wednesday morning and then suddenly Vikings. That's right. That's right. Mm. There's a whole revisionist tendency in history now to see the Vikings as a bit hard done by, you know. Basically, they were just antique collectors who got a bit enthusiastic. <laughs> no. <laughs> they were murderers with boats looking well, for more wood, right? Yeah. I think on the whole, their reputation is probably justified. Give us your natural resources. We've run out. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Yes. Um, uh, and then we've got Hengist and Horsa, 65 hmm. again, more mythic history. Hengist and Horsa were supposed to be the... The Saxons, Saxons who were recruited by Vortigern to to fight against Well, they can't be the Vikings, of course, because the Vikings are far too So the whoever was there. <laughs> well <laughs> they they were they were they were recruited to protect the Sac the uh, the Britons. Against the Easterlings. Well, against against unruly Saxons, I suppose. Okay. So you find yourself some ruly Saxons. And unruly Saxons. Yeah. Now, the trouble is the, the, the ruly ones became unruly. But that's the theory. Mm. Nobody, again, nobody knows. We rely on Bede. 
the likelihood. In fact, that's so much of Western hero history goes down to one dude at a cake with I candles. Know. Right. <laughs> Without internet. Yeah. <laughs> Just. Exactly. Without a library, really. I mean, he took a library, would he? Yeah, this is, this is the problem. Because it's quite likely there were lots of Germanic people in England, even under the Romans. You know, we know nothing about the language that the ancient Britons spoke and whether indeed there were German speakers in there. And people yet like to assert with absolute certainty these things. The Vikings mm. were, the Saxons were, they spoke, yeah. but... Saxons eradicated the, the British. That's not true. That's not we true know that now. We <laughs> do know that because of DNA and various other things. But yeah, it wasn't a genocide, it was a yeah. partial takeover. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. A hostile takeover. Hostile maybe. takeover, yeah. <laughs> Well, as late as the late 7th century, there are laws passed in Wessex, which are basically about, about you know, about Wergild. This is, if you, if you have to kill another man, mm. or man, in your case, <laughs> um, it's not treated necessarily as a criminal event. It's, you get it, you find, basically, and the fine goes to the family. It's called man money, Wergild. Man guilt. But, but not guilt like gold. Okay. Call it man oh, gold. Oh, guilt. Okay. Not guilt in the, in like the gilded. moral sense. Yeah. yeah. Like gilded. Yeah, okay. Yes. Shakespeare plays in that, of course. Mm. Um, I'll gild the faces of the grooms with all, for it must seem their guilt. Nice. Which is an awful pun. <laughs> if he likes them. <laughs> so yeah, do I. <laughs> I <know. laughs> That's right. So, uh, it, was, it was like a sort of... Like letting your, your pigs feed on somebody else's garbage, you know. It's weird, isn't it? Anyway, the point is... <laughs> the point is, th- these rules state that if you kill a Briton, a wearer is... <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what they call them. And, 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 no, wearer. 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 Which you can see gives us Welsh. Ah, <laughs> OK. <laughs> And they were they were they were certainly a little bit down in the social scale. So you paid less of a wergilt to kill a wearer. Um, <laughs> surprising nobody. Yep. Yeah, surprising nobody. Um, plus, if 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 a wearer killed uh, a Saxon, uh, you'd have you to pay a bit more. more. Yeah. But why would you have laws unless there were a whole bunch of wearer in Wessex <laughs> in the late sixth century? I see your point. Yes, exactly. Mm. Right. Yeah. Huh. Sorry, late seventh century. What am I saying? What are you saying, Peter? <laughs> <laughs> so basically, you can't rely on Spencer for um, early medieval history, or anyone, or anyone. That's true. <laughs> and that's Spencer's point. <laughs> that's Spencer's. Oh, they're normally called Hengist and Horsa. Right, I have heard. Yeah, Hengist was coarser than Horsa, and Horsa was awfully coarse. <laughs> you know that little rhyme? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it reads a little bit like ten sixty six and all that. <laughs> yeah, like yes. which is history again condensed into these very simplified mythic archetypes, these intentional objects. You know, King John was a, King be. John was a bad man, capital B, capital M, that kind yeah, of thing. Bad King John, yeah, bad, bad King, John. King John, yes, yes. not nuanced, we could say. Um, oh, after him, Uther, which Pendragonite. Oh, thank goodness, yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, and they're the sons of... Const- so by this, the sons of Constantine which fled, Ambrose and Uther did ripe years attain. So that, is he trying to say that in this version, Uther is the son of Constantine? 
Well, he is. He is. Makes no sense at all. All right. <laughs> Constantine is a Roman, and Uther is a, a Celt, Celtic. isn't he? A Celtic English king. dude from way back when. Father of Arthur. So Arthur's great-grandfather <laughs> is Emperor Constantine well, in he, this he, version. But you can see how that gives him a lot of auctoritas. So the argument I'm always having with first years is they're saying that fan fiction is literature, and of course it's not. But they like to throw back and say, oh, but, you know, Shakespeare's fan fiction. I say, yes, I know, but it's also art. It's done artfully. Yes. It's not just some person at their laptop at 3 a.m. in the morning. It's, it's art. Exactly. But here again, <laughs> this is entirely fan fiction done well, artfully. It is. Mm. It is. Mm. There you go, first years. You win a point. <laughs> but only one. <laughs> that's right. But no, but that, that's right. But what happens is he, he's now got a double pronged authority, hasn't he? But both prongs go back to ancient Troy by Rome. So Brutus, but then Constantine. <laughs> yeah, so Brutus through Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, well, no, well. No, Brutus is the Trojan. Brutus is the that Trojan. went the wrong way home. Yes, the wrong way to his exactly. Home. And he encounters this island, and there's the one true church, which we've rediscovered with Elizabeth, and there was giants and. Yeah, well, that, that's right. You're, yeah. you're kind of conflating two things Hang there. No? Sorry, I'm trying to simplify. Uh, okay, <laughs> so so Brutus goes to England, land of giants. And he's the one th- true church? No. Okay. No. Your turn. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, Brutus is about political authority. Okay. Because it comes uh, from Troy? Yeah. Yep. And Troy is, for some reason, which I've never been able to, to find out, the source of all political authority. It's a bit like the Jews being the chosen people, you know. We don't know why, but they are. Yes, that's <laughs> okay. right. <laughs> oh, God, it's raining again. Um... Uh, Right, that's prong yeah, one. That's prong one. Well, well, well th- I think there might be three prongs. Well, there are certainly two prongs here. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, oh, I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Constantine as the founder of the Catholic Church's political authority. Yes. Yeah, well, good, good point. Okay, thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay, we, we can have three prongs then. Yeah? Yes. <laughs> three prongs is better than... Better than two. Yep. Um... That's exactly right. Your snag won't fall off. <laughs> what? Your snag on what? Your snag won't fall off if you have three prongs. <laughs> um, yeah, that's 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 right. So the Joseph Arimathea thing is purely spiritual authority. Ah. Oh. But all this comes down to the fact that these kinds of authority meet in Elizabeth as they would have met in Constantine. She is the meeting of the prongs. She's the meeting of the prongs, yes. A fork. (laughs) (laughs) The handle of a fork, if you will. (laughs) Right. That's right. Uh, (laughs) Elizabeth is a fork. She's a fork. Because she declared, and and in fact Henry VIII is the first fork, because he claims to be going to be an empire, and then Elizabeth repeats that claim. And what that means is an empire is an emperor isn't somebody who rules vast tracts of land or colonises other people. It's a ruler who owes no authority to any Any other worldly person, only to God. Only God. Whereas, you know, the French king is technically owing allegiance to... The Pope. The Pope. Which, and that's how he gets his line to God. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, and and, and the the Duke of Württemberg um, owes allegiance... To king who owns to Pope. 
Well, he, well, he, ah, no. Or emperor. Emperor. Yeah, okay. So he owes his allegiance to the emperor. But even the emperor owes some allegiance to the pope. And of course, to what extent pope and emperor... And that was, that was the problem. That was, that was a big, that was a big problem, problem for <laughs> centuries. <laughs> That's right. A few died. Um. That's right. <laughs> yes. That's right. But Elizabeth, as a true emperor or empress, owes nobody anything. She so can do what she likes. Spiritual authority, mm. political authority, and then legitimacy, mythologically. Yes, but what we've got, if Constantine is yeah. Arthur's grandfather, which of course is nonsense, then we have an instance of that fused authority of empire, which is which is both political mm, and religious, and religious, and spiritual. Yeah, exactly. It's just busily tying knots between all these different... <laughs> That's right. Okay, strands, yeah. And indeed, you can see the donation of Constantine, which... Spencer, he takes it seriously as a myth, mm. just as he takes Joseph everything seriously as a myth, if that makes sense. Wrong history. Um, is clearly superordinate to the Pope, because he kind of makes the Pope a ruler by giving him lands and... The donation. The donation of Constantine. Exactly so. So he's a good model for Elizabeth. So yes, a, a, three, a three-pronged attack on Elizabeth. That's good. I like that. She's a fork. She's a fork. <laughs> so there abruptly it did end. Well, of course it ends because the next person is going to be Luther Bendragon's son. Arthur, who Arthur. is in the poem. <laughs> well, exactly. So, but but the, the history he's reading cuts off there, obviously. Mm. And then we get a foretelling by Merlin later in The Fairy Queen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, almost as though, he, I don't know, almost as though he's aware that uh, some people might find this tedious. He says, <laughs> it, We are up to almost 70 stanzas. <laughs> I know. At last, quite ravished with delight to hear the royal offspring of his native land, cried out, Dear country, oh, how dearly dear wrought thy remembrance and perpetual band be to thy foster child, that from thy hand did common breath and nurture receive. How brutish is it not to understand? Interesting pun, isn't it? How stupid is Brutish. Brutish, yeah. but of course, Brut- Brut- Brutish. Yes, that's right. And of course, Brutus, there's a special resonance to Brutus because the first Brutus is the chap who kicked out the, the kings from Rome and made Rome a republic. And, and then another Brutus, who liked to claim to be his descendant, is the, the man who kicked out or who killed Julius Caesar when he wanted to turn the republic into an empire. It's funny how we always think of Caesar as the victim. Yes, that's right, that's right. Because we, we always think of Brutus as the big be- betrayer. Yeah. And isn't he in, in Dante's hell? He certainly is. He's in the very lowest position. Which, I guess, spiritually, yeah, right, he deserved. But politically and realistically... Well, I mean, politically... If, if, I mean, Julius Caesar wasn't an emperor, of course. He Mm-mm. just tried to found the empire. Mm. Um, it seems a bit odd to us. Well, because he's actually... Because for Shakespeare, Brutus is a bit of a culture hero. And it's interesting that he's... Um, there's a kind of crossover with Hamlet. I mean, some of his speeches sound very Hamlet-y. They're written at the same time. Same actors did them. So that when Polonius says, um, you know, I, I was... I, I did play um, Caesar. Brutus killed me in the Capitol. Oh, he really means it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, that act, the actor who played Polonius is also the actor who played Caesar and, and got stabbed by the actor who plays Brutus and Hamlet. Hilarious. Which is, yeah, which is, of course, 
It's a little theatrical in-joke. Mm. Shakespeare yeah. liked that. Okay, <laughs> That's right. right. But the point is, Brutus wasn't really the man's name. Um, it's a sort of guise to be adopted to appear harmless. So Because appears, oh, I look you, stupid. Yeah. I'm stupid. So I'm not, I'm not worried, you know. As opposed to, you know, let me have men about me that are fat. Young Cassius hath a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. Mm. Whereas, you know, plump Brutus, never going to be a threat to anybody. But of course, Hamlet takes on madness in the way that Brutus takes on stupidity. stupidity so as not to appear a threat to the monarch. Huh, clever. Yes. Mm. But again, a deviation. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost. I'm going to call this the Book of Kings and Deviations. <laughs> <laughs> he's ravished with delight. But I suppose, you know, he, he's got a, a, a reason to be. And he's got some level of pride. Yes. Healthy pride. It's like the family scrapbook album, you know. <laughs> oh, look. Yeah. No, no, look. Oh, yeah. yeah. She murdered him and then <laughs> he strangled her. And, <laughs> <laughs> and me. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But Guy, all this while his book did read, nor yet it ended. It's a much smaller book, so he must be a slow reader, I suspect. Um, for it was a great and ample volume that have far exceed my leisure. So long leaves here to repeat, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, this book is just nonsense history because it's the history of elves. It told how first Prometheus did create a man of many parts from beasts derived and then stole fire from heaven to animate his work, for which he was by Jove deprived. Hold up. Of life himself. Heartstrings of an eagle writhed. So. And that version is from Ovid. Yeah, that's right. It's very different to the Aeschylus. The Aeschylus version. And then Hesiod. Hesiod? Hesiod, yes. Yeah, before that. Yeah. Because mm. he only gets a tiny mention in Ovid. It's like a small paragraph. <laughs> it's interesting that he picked that one. Well, it is, isn't it? But if you think about it, it's mythic history. But then so it's, it's Roman. Well. Well, no, it's, it's elfish history. Oh, sorry, I meant Ovid. Oh, Ovid? Yeah. Yes, yes no, no. Um, but, so he's going back, really, to the fall, mm. isn't he? Stealing fire from heaven, isn't the sense. Yeah, it casts him as the sin. Satan figure. Yes. Well, via the Ovid version, which kind of, of, yeah, interesting. Yeah, that's right. That man, Semate, he called Elf. It's a weed quick. The first author of all the elf in kind. Wondering if the world with weary feet did in the garden of Adonis find a goodly creature who he dead, deemed in mind to be no earthly wight but either sprite or angel, the author of all womankind. Therefore, a fay he to her, he her according height, but for more fairies sprung and fetched a lineage right. So, this is the origin of the people of fairyland? Yes, that's right, fairies. Um, who are interestingly, I mean. <sighs> They were still taken seriously, the idea of fairies, by villagers. Um, you know, you can see Shakespeare already turning them into mythological creatures. I mean, in, in the Middle Ages, fairies were they, they were... they were believed in, to some extent. But more as kind of superstitious tales? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to gauge this, isn't it? Yeah, we, we, we can't go back into a survey. Do you actually believe in them, or do you like yes. the stories, and are they good ways of controlling your exactly. children? Exactly, exactly. And what does it mean to believe in something? Because based on our culture, two people 200 years from now will be like, oh, they both believed in Santa. Because yes. every year they watch their Santa films, and they did the... That's right. <laughs> it's like, no. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, think of... Um, well, Hamlet again. Um, 
some say that against that time our saviour comes no fairy takes nor witch hath power to charm so hallowed and so gracious is the time so fairies and witches belong partly to the same sort of realm of the fearfully supernatural you know mm. they weren't cosy and cuddly they were they were little people they were possibly malevolent they would switch babies mm. they could and they could do all sorts of little harms in the way witches could like turning your milk to yeah to, to sour whatever away, yeah yeah all that stuff and, and they brought diseases but they could also be helpful. So again, just kind of a myth. A myth, and they're strongly associated with with sexuality. Um, it's yeah, it's interesting that the witches are you know always bring disease, but Merwin's all right. Oh yeah, Merwin's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Of course, if if the fairy queen persuades you to kiss her, oh, you're done for, aren't you? Well, no, you become her sex slave for seven years and a day. Yeah. Could be worse. Could be worse. That's right. Yeah. But then when you return to the world after your seven years of servitude, if that's what it is, mm. you find that the world has stayed stood still. Mm. And yeah. there's a lot of pop culture plays on that now. Yeah. That's a very popular one, yeah. Mm. Um, probably because of the sex slave stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you think of the, you know, Titania and Bottom, mm-hmm. that's a sort of... It's a sort of kiddie version of that, which alludes to it as a joke, you know, basically. Mm, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's a, what, you, what would you call it? Um, what, what's the rating that isn't restricted? PG. PG. Okay, yeah, it could be PG. Could be. <laughs> yes, it could be PG. So Guyon is um, enjoying his book. You can see that he comes to the Garden of Adonis. It's, it's almost so we've got... It's almost like the Garden of Eden without a fall having taken place. It's like an alternative version of what humanity might be like if they had never fallen, sort of. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, of course, we meet the Gardens of Adonis in Book 3. Mm-hmm. So, which in, and the Gardens of Adonis is all about, well, it's about nature, generative nature, mm-hmm. producing, producing life. So we get mighty people with puissant kings which all the world were aid to themselves all nations did subdue. Hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, it's, again, these are unfallen creatures, so there's a kind of effortless victory of reason over, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. They've got elf, elf, they've, it must be very confusing because they're all called elf something, elfin, elfin and elfin elf. Well, because you've got Ethel... Ethel Red, Ethel. Oh yes. Bread, Ethel Hurst. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. Yes. That's right. We've got all the Ethels. All the Ethels. Um, and again, this is doubly made-up history. <laughs> Super made-up. <laughs> Super made-up. Yeah. Um, Seven hundred princes since seventy-four. And after these, Elphiklios did reign. The wise Elphiklios. You see, some called fair Elf. I mean, it's almost deliberate. Isn't it? Because you can't possibly remember all these names beginning with Elf. No, you're just meant to take him at his word yes. and connect them all and say, okay, that's what that means overall. Like, that's, that's right. That's that, yeah. That's right. Except then you've got, we've got the mighty Oberon. How did he get in there? Uh, you, uh, you've suggested previously that he stands for Henry VIII. Oh, well, yes, he does stand for Henry VIII. That's true. Well, I just meant how did that name Oh, yeah. Why Oberon? Yeah. Oberon, yes. Hmm. I mean... He must have stood out among all the elves. So, in other words, going back a bit, this is Elphiklios 
is clearly Henry the Seventh. Yes. And then the fair Elferon is Arthur, and Oberon is Henry the Eighth. And again, these are crucial in relations to each other. Well, yeah, and also they're crucial to the historiography of the whole poem in that it's bound up with the history of the English Church. And so, you know, Henry VIII is the first to initiate that break with Rome, even though it wasn't, of course, a heresy, but a schism, hmm. which is a, a subtlety people don't often understand. Yeah, yeah. But but he he never deviated. Well, he, he deviated in small idiosyncratic ways from Catholicism, but not enough to be called a heresy. He was a Catholic. He was, he was burning Protestants on his deathbed, so to speak. Henry VIII. Hmm. Right. But he did... It was a very much a choose-your-own-adventure kind of religion with Henry. So the certain parts, like, you know, pilgrimage and monasticism, he felt happy to part with. Because mm-hmm. he had a lot of Protestant advisers. And he could get a lot of money. Well, there is that. <laughs> there is <laughs> There's that. just these banks sitting around that That's you can go right. and plunder. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so a schism... So it wasn't that he necessarily went, I'm the Church of England now... This, I'm heretically living you goodbye. It was, we're no. going to part ways here. Well, no, a, a schism is a change in or. ecclesiastical organisation. <laughs> so, now you could say that <laughs> declaring yourself, you know, the English Pope is <laughs> a change in organisation, but you're not changing any of the core doctrines. That would be heresy. And that just sort of happened slowly as Protestantism filtered in and the Reformation, and that was. Well, no. Okay. Um, <laughs> what happens is that, well, Henry, Henry, as I say, remained a Catholic, Catholic king. Yeah. Even though towards the end of his reign in the 1530s, it got confusing because, you know, this week something was in and next week it was out. Yeah, hard to keep track of how you lose your head. Yeah. Yes. But um, he, never, he never made any major changes to... So it became Church of England, but more in name than in... Well, yeah. He, he declared he's the head of the Catholic Church of England. Oh. Now, a lot of this is obscured by people who want a simple story of the Reformation. They really do, yes, yeah. me included. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the dog. Um, yeah, so he had a lot of Protestant advisers, and so certain things, things slipped in, and of course Anne Boleyn was, was, was Lutheran. Oops, she did slip in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but then the big break came with his death, and his son... 1553, his son... Uh, no, sorry, not 1553, what am I saying? 15... Well, anyway, when did he... 48? Edward? Edward, Edward. Yes. I think, I think, it, was, I think it was 48. His son Edward takes over, but his son Edward is... It's good. Oh, thank you. <laughs> ...is uh, in his minority, mm. and so there's a ruling council. The ruling council is fiercely Calvinistic, so there's a sudden disjuncture on the death of Henry where England becomes officially a kind of Calvinist country. The prayer book is altered and there's all sorts of... And there are uprisings like the Pilgrimage of Grace and you know, all these things. So the council just kind of took away Edward's power? Well... Or the way... They he, he made, was a child. They called the shop. So oh, yeah, OK. He was That's a child. Right. Um, wow. Yeah. And a sickly child, who, of course, didn't get beyond the age of 15 or so. And then we get Elizabeth. No. No, then we get Mary. Yes. Yes. Sorry. Again, a sudden landslide. That's a bit of a shift. <laughs> yes. Right. Back to Catholicism. Back to Catholicism. Because she's an adult. And then, yeah, okay. And that lasts five years, 1553. That is a lot of political upheaval. Yeah, huge. 
That's the and, point you're always making. Yes. yes. <laughs> and, and and change in the nature of absolute truth. Yes. What is truth? Yeah, and if you're a lowly peasant. Well, that's right. Well, honestly, you probably just keep doing your Catholic shit because exactly. you've been doing it for generations. That's what your grandmother exactly. did. That's what you cared about. Who gives a shit who the and king it, is? And it runs very deep. You know, the whole idea that you can pray for your dead relatives. That and get them deep. out of, yeah. And just because, you know, this year the, the officials say that you can't do that. Yeah. It's kind of like now that nobody gives a toss who the yeah. prime minister is. Or that's who right. The, but or we the, or the king. next month. Yeah, or the king. Yes. Yeah, we all just laughed. And made memes collectively. That's, right. <laughs> um. That's it. Um, and of course, you know, people are burnt at the stake for persisting in their Protestantism. So the Reformation is building um, power in Europe and yeah, is starting to filter in. Very much so. Okay, and that's what that's what he, who Henry VIII is burning at the stake. That's who sort of is trying to take over when Edward is little. Mary comes in and she's trying to step that out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and then Elizabeth comes to power and she probably realises you have to give and take a bit. Yeah, she, she realises very much that... And we need to develop a Church have, of England. Yes, if you're going to have... Well, I mean, that's that's already happened, you know, in a sense, although... Well, she kind of, like, codify, you know, she, is she the one that... Well, she's not the one who does, does the codifiers... <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, there's, there's the prayer book. There's basically the English Church. It took some time to sort out what are called the Thirty Nine Articles. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that was just a collective effort. Oh yeah. Well, yes, it's a collective effort. It's right. Yeah. Okay. Um, and also what are called the homilies, which are appointed to be read in churches. But you look at them and they're very carefully crafted to be ambiguous. Ah. <laughs> so, for example. One of the big dividers between Catholics and Protestants was the Eucharist. What exactly is going on at the Eucharist? What are you doing when you... Is it magic? <laughs> is it magic? Because <laughs> in that case, witchcraft. Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's very much how Protestants saw it. Or is it symbolic? Or is it symbolic? But if you see, the trouble is, if it were just two... You know, the, the reason the Protestants never all gathered together <laughs> in one happy family mm. is that they all had different views of crucial things like the nature of the Eucharist. Um, the nature of salvation and grace and so on. So, if you were a Zwinglian, mm. you believed it was purely symbolic. You know, eat, eat, eat this and drink this in remembrance of me. If you're a Catholic, you believe you're actually chowing down on flesh and blood, which is a bit disgusting mm-hmm. and weirdly cannibalistic. Mm-hmm. Between those, you have a very variety of Lutheran, Calvinist, and other points of view in which you have something of the doctrine of the real presence. That is to say that somehow Christ participates in the process without actually, you know, offering his blood. Um, So that uh, Luther, for example, says that God and the bread coexist in the way that heat and iron coexist in hot iron. Commingling. Well, look, it's a nonsense analogy. It doesn't make any sense. But But it's metaphorical and that's what matters. Well, it's, it's a... It's a try- an attempt to represent a mystery mm. through a homely analogy. So if you claim it doesn't make sense, then in a sense, we, you know, Luther can say, well, yeah, of course it doesn't make sense. You're a groveling worm and this is... You know, On the dunghill of iniquity. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. So people would fight over these little differences in what it actually meant, what the Eucharist actually... Crazily. Yes, Okay. So Elizabeth isn't necessarily in charge of that. She's just more welcoming towards... Well, what she, what she says is basically... It's very clever, actually. Yeah. Downright, as, as, as we realise. 
The article, I think it's Article 16 that deals with this, is studiedly vague and ambiguous. And basically it means that you can accept Article 16 unless you are a card-carrying Catholic or a complete Zwinglian. <laughs> Sir, you are a complete Zwinglian. <laughs> but anything between those two... Because <laughs> that is like one step away from atheism, isn't it? Zwinglians. Oh, well, it's... it's that it's purely symbolic. You know, yes, it's, it's, it's very it's close. It's frowned on by everybody. Mm. Yes, mm. that's right. Um... And it never got, never got the traction of Calvinism. It's interesting, isn't it? Calvinism was always... Oh, Calvinism is so dramatic, though. People like drama. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> I feel like it had the appeal of the Kardashians for... Anyway. <laughs> Early modern England, yeah. And, of course, there was uh, Arminianism. Mm, that was... Gee, the... No, Arianism is whether or not... Oh, yeah, no, that's, 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 that's a 4th century mm. heresy. Arminianism is... Uh, well, Arminianism is, is, is basically, it's a variant of Calvinism, but it's much more flexible and friendly. It says Christ did indeed die for, every, die for everybody, and that if you move toward God, God will move toward you. That's but no, nobody is actually reprobated. Okay. To eternal damnation. No one actually knocks on the door with chocolates, but they might be out there on the street somewhere, and you well, should be going to the window. Uh, yes. That could be it. <laughs> or you have you have to earn the knock, so to speak. <laughs> and the more Christmas lights you put up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's right. Virtue signalling. Yeah, something like that. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's much more humane and rational, and yet, of course, the Calvinists hated this. A lot of what tore him in the part, moving into the Civil War, was this radical difference between Calvinists and Arminians within the Church of England. Mm. So Archbishop Lord, for example, is an Arminian. Ah, mm. oh, that's where I know it from. Yes, no, it's all yeah. coming back to me now. Because um, Milton didn't like Lord. No, he certainly didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, whether Milton's a Calvinist or not is another question, because he doesn't follow anybody. It doesn't, yeah, it's not clear. He's his own man. And, and again, scholars like to say he is blah, and be, because yeah. we don't know and they just like to point to things and take that as the whole it's the same with Spencer that's right yeah that's right mm. well poets have a more subtle view of these matters they're intelligent creatures they are right <laughs> <laughs> we're sort of at the end we're sort of at the end because we're not going to go through this in detail except to, you know to say that this much briefer history is a, is a kind of mythic version of the history and with as I say the fall kind of expunged from it interestingly mm. And it's interesting that even the history we have, like not outside of this, in itself is largely myth. Mm. Yes. As if all histories are myth. <laughs> um, That's right. Because That's they right. are told by biased folk, yeah, to represent a certain perspective. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can't, you can't utter a historical narrative without... Manipulating it one way or the other. Yeah, even, even unconsciously. Um it's just not possible. It's not feasible. I, I think a, a good maybe comparison that we might have in Australia is the Anzacs. You know, we have intentional objects in the Anzacs. Mm. Mateship and... That's right. Blokes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, who go off and give it a red hot go and come home for family and friends. And yeah, maybe, but for the most part it was just scared young men signing up. Well, that's right. For They knew not what. Yeah. Well, it, but it, I mean, it's, again, it's interesting what you choose as your as your sort of dominant intentional object because 
it's a very Australian thing to be to, to, to avoid having tickets on yourself to be oh you yeah because of tall poppy apologetic syndrome apologetic yeah yes yes <laughs> um yeah, the unassuming Anzac. You know, yeah. yeah. So the, the myth isn't, you know, as the Russians or the Germans have it, isn't, you know, the great victory, but um, wherever it was, that French town. V-I-L-L-E-R-S. Oh, Villa Bretno. Ah. Yes. But that's a heroic myth, and therefore somehow not fitting the Australian... It is, it's downplayed. We care more about Gallipoli. Yeah. The big defeat. And, and, and that, fields, yeah. And this, the same with England. England, weirdly, tends to celebrate its defeats. Dunkirk, the burial of Sir John Moore at Carrara. And even then, Dunkirk is always represented in popular culture as a weird victory of the people, you know, because they go across yes. in their boats and they get the everyone and bring them back and, and it's like, we got them! That's right. <laughs> Yay, England! That's right. Yeah. Yeah. As opposed to those sort of French and German myths which you mentioned about state power and you know, Napoleon marching over Europe and mm. winning huge battles. Whereas, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> well, we've covered a lot of history. <laughs> well, and kind of history. Yeah, and kind of history, kind of sort of history. Um, <laughs> and pointed yeah. out the myths. <laughs> pointed out the myths, yes. So, I don't know. Yes, it was a little, a little devious, that one. But, but the next, the next, I was going to say chapter, the next, the next canto is, of course, fun, the, fun, fun. Are we in the Bower of Bliss? Oh no, we've got Maliga. Maliga, yes. Yes. And then. Yeah, that's 11. And then the Bower of Bliss. Mm. Exciting. Okay. Well. Well. We will see you next time. Yes. And we'll be more focused next time. Well. We won't be high on pain meds. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner.